It's June the 8th, Tuesday morning. This show is presented proudly by our title sponsor, Bitcoin Well. Of course, there's a lot going on right now. When it comes to crypto, Bitcoin and others in a bit of a nosedive right now. And a lot of people are trying to figure out exactly what the smart play is. If you'd like some insight into why it's trending the way it is, why it was so high before, and why some people believe it's bouncing back up, you can contact the team at Bitcoin Well. Plus, look for their Bitcoin ATMs across Canada. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, good morning, friends, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Obviously, uh, a horrific story out of London, Ontario, and we'll be talking uh, in just a moment to the CEO of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Mustafa Farouk will join us in just a moment. A devastating uh, mass murder, an act of terrorism, quite frankly, a 20 year old man in custody after uh, police allege a family uh, was was intentionally mowed down. This guy driving a black pickup truck claiming the lives of four people four family members uh, including a 74 year old woman a man and woman in their 40s and a 15 year old girl that's a grandmother it's a mom and a dad and their teenage daughter that's who it is uh the nine-year-old son surviving uh described in very serious but uh, stable condition uh recovering in hospital is the city of london ontario Obviously, the nation and people around the world grapple with uh, this heinous hate crime. Uh, This isn't the type of uh, time. This isn't the type of circumstance where you attempt to make sense of something like this. Nothing about this makes sense. People are numb. Uh, And I know that uh, Mustafa in just a moment will will no doubt have some insight uh, for us into into how uh, Muslims across the country and beyond, I'm sure, are processing this act of targeted hate and violence, this hate crime. Uh, federal investigators are uh, assisting local police in investigating this crime. And there has been uh, the potential noted of terrorism charges here. And, and we'll get into that. Author Julie Lalonde, by the way, will join us in about 10 minutes from now. Uh, Julie, uh, the author of a number of books, including Resilience is Futile. Um, she's a. Uh, She's lived harassment. Uh, She's an expert on violence and bystander intervention. Uh, Julie's been uh, requested and suggested by many of our audience members, and we're grateful that she's made time clearing time for us uh, this morning. Of course, if you're paying attention to social media, you've no doubt seen, um, you know, hundreds or thousands uh, on your feed expressions of grief and sorrow. Uh, people absolutely appalled. Here's some of the tweets that that I noticed uh, over the past uh, 36 hours or so. Of course, this this crime uh, occurring on Sunday and, uh, and 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 it's really all the Canadians are talking about last night and into today. Uh, a friend of this show, you've heard Dr. Uh, Mana Saleh on the show before earlier this evening. She tweets, I canceled plans to walk with a dear friend after news of the Solomon family murders. I just couldn't. I'll continue to live unapologetically, says Mana, as a Muslim woman in hijab. Hate will not win. But tonight, like so many others, I am angry and grieving. My former colleague, uh, global reporter Camille Caramali, 
this hits so close to home for so many of us. He writes, my Pakistani Muslim family often go on walks after dinner, sometimes in traditional clothing. I keep thinking about them. Donovan Bennett, a broadcaster with Sportsnet, says, don't say it doesn't happen here. You know, came here for a better life, only to lose their life. Make sure you use the word terrorist, premeditated, targeted, travesty. Prayers up for the London community. I love uh, my Muslim brothers and sisters across the country who need our love. That from broadcaster Donovan Bennett. Heike tweeted, uh, I, I hate the word Islamophobia. Phobias are supposed to be natural and beyond your control, like acrophobia. This shit ain't natural. You know, journalists can use, you know, quote, anti-Muslim hate, right? Center people in the discussion, center people in the discussion. This isn't about our fear of our religion. It's hatred toward our existence. Terms like Islamophobia allow people to cover behind both sides or I have freedom of speech. This ain't islamophobia and here's one more from hazi hobbit who tweeted there's a problem with the term islamophobia the word used to describe the hate and bigotry against muslims makes excuses for perpetrators it blames muslims for being scary so to speak you know what's scary a radicalized white supremacist who murdered a family with his car not wrong it's a horrific act of violence it's it's obviously a hate crime the mayor of london ontario has spoken on this as as have a number of of elected officials of course at every level of government ed holders the mayor of london said this was an act of mass murder perpetrated against muslims it was rooted in unspeakable hatred the magnitude of such hatred can make one question who we are or who we were as a city said i speak on behalf of all londoners when i say our hearts are broken we grieve for the family three generations of whom are now deceased we weep for their loved ones we pray for the recovery of the nine-year-old boy who remains in hospital the prime minister said in a tweet he was horrified by the news said the right honorable justin trudeau islamophobia has no place in any of our communities the hate is insidious and despicable and it must stop premier doug ford out of ontario demanding a stop in a tweet to these heinous acts of violence. The National Council of Canadian Muslims uh, over the course of uh, from 2015 to 2019, it was a four year span, tracked more than 300 incidents, including more than 30 acts of physical violence, 300 incidents over the course of four years. That, of course, includes that gun attack. You remember on the 29th of January back in 2017 on the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec that left six people dead, 19 more injured. It was one of the deadliest. It is one of the deadliest mass shootings in Canada's recent history. So we reach out to our community members. Jake says it's the same sort of a thing that that phobia that's making me think about, you know, Islamophobia. Jake says it's the same word about homophobia. I never thought about it that way. Says it's a good point. Kelly Joe says language is just so important. Erica chiming in as well says the same reason. I don't like the term homophobic when you're describing LGBTQ slurs and insults. It has nothing to do with fear and it has everything to do with hate. 
It's a great point. That's not something that's been on my radar before, and I look forward to having that conversation. Uh, perhaps we've, we've crossed wires with Mustafa Farouk, or I suspect I know that he's doing a lot of interviews right now. Um, Sam and Sarah will keep me posted if he does chime in, and we'll make sure that he gets on the show. Uh, in the meantime, um, public educator and author Julie Lalonde joining us this morning. She's been working for years improving the lives of women and girls in Canada with a focus on engaging bystanders. There's bystander intervention opportunities. This is where you can create communities of support. Um, she's been teaching these as part of a series of free workshops, and we'll have uh, details on that in just a moment. Sam, I can't see. What's the sign say that you just showed me? Just let me know what's going on. Oh, just said uh, uh, Julie's not quite Julie's ready. Julie's not yes, quite ready. Yet. Okay, yeah. thanks. Set up Good on, stuff. In, in okay, just let me know. That's great. We'll get to author Julie Lund in just a second. Sam, in the meantime, why don't I just remind our friends that we'll be checking the hashtag RealTalkRJ this morning. And, uh, of course, you can uh, be in touch with the show both when we're live as well as, uh, you know, later on. If you're if you're catching the podcast later on, RJ is the hashtag that we're keeping an eye on. It's presented by the team at Park power park power powering the real talk hashtag in at parkpower.ca you'll see if you use the promo code 2021 dash real talk they're going to give you 70 dollars off your first bill that's commercial residential industrial at parkpower.ca internet electricity and natural gas you can check out their social media accounts as well lots of great information there thanks to the team at park power for your ongoing support the team at Friesen Brothers wants to remind you that the Father's Day boxes are coming up. This is a, a really neat opportunity to show a lot of love for dad on Father's Day, but save yourself a whole bunch of work. I've seen these Father's Day boxes. It's great. They've thought of everything from the cinnamon buns you need for Father's Day morning all the way through to some great pre-prepared dips and snacks perfect for midday and then all the fixings for a perfect barbecue. Whether dad's going to be out there on the grill, whether you're going to be grilling for dad, whatever the case may be, Friesen Brothers has you covered at their stores in South Edmonton, Stony Plain and Fort Saskatchewan. Of course, in total, 16 stores across the province of Alberta. For more information, check out their website. We link to it under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. As mentioned, Julie Lalonde, uh, our guest this morning, uh, her memoir, Resistant, Resilience, rather, Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death and Life of Julie S. Lalonde, published spring of 2020 with rave reviews uh it won the 2020 ontario speakers award it was named one of the best books of the year by cbc books and the hill times uh julie's also contributed to sick of the system why the covid19 recovery must be revolutionary a pleasure to welcome her to real talk thanks for making time this morning and welcome to the show Thanks for having me. Uh, this I, I don't know. I mean, what what question do you begin with when everyone's processing the horror of what happened in London, Ontario? I, I, I guess I can ask you where your head's at, but I suspect you'll tell me you're numb and appalled, but I don't want to assume anything. Absolutely. I am appalled and I am horrified, but I'm not shocked because we have seen with, you know, for just example, just a few years ago, right? Like the Quebec City mosque shooting. We have seen these kinds of crimes happen. We have seen this Islamophobia, this hatred of Muslim folks that's really rooted in xenophobia. Um, but we've also seen a, a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes over the past year. We've seen a rise in sexual violence. Like we know that the pandemic has brought a lot of fear. And with that comes, frankly, the worst versions of people coming to the forefront. So I don't want to blame the pandemic for what happened on Sunday because I don't think that's appropriate. But I do want to 
get folks to understand that we are seeing a rise in all kinds of different hate crimes. Um, and that's not a coincidence. I, I was uh, all over your Twitter yesterday, but both, I mean, the important messages that you were sharing from other people, you were amplifying people's voices and, and you had your own thoughts, including this one, where you beg Canadian media to once again, you say, remember that these losers want infamy. You know, they want their manifestos and their rotten ideas to proliferate. They want to recruit. Um, you beg, you say, do not give them the platform they so desperately crave. You can't shame someone who's proud to be shit. If the Toronto Star publishes this wankers police interview like they did with the van attack in Toronto, you say, I swear to God, I'll flip every table in sight. You know, you're not an air expert in terrorism, but you do work with angry young men every day. You say you've been getting death threats from pond scum for two decades. You say fucking starve them of the attention they want. And then you go on to talk about what a high school student, a white high school student called you in a workshop last week. You say anybody who's been paying attention knows many young white men are furious. Can you tell us about this interaction last week? Yeah, so I'm a public educator who spends most of my time training people on how to prevent violence against women and how to respond to it as a bystander. And I was giving a workshop on street harassment, the reality of street harassment, and exactly what I said, the fact that we're seeing such a rise in sexual violence, racism, homophobia, transphobia. And so I was asking them to think about, you know, who is impacted by harassment in our community? And there was a, this was to a high school, a series of high schools. And there was one young man in particular that was so mad that I wasn't talking about how white people are the ones who are being targeted white people are the ones disproportionately being harassed in the streets um, and just could not let it go. And when I refused to acknowledge his comment, because the joy of online training is if I don't read your response out loud, no one has to hear it. Um, so you couldn't physically interrupt me like you would in a workshop. So then he went on to call me a race traitor and said that I was, you know, clearly not a good white person because I wasn't talking about how white people are being harmed by harassment. And that is one tiny example of what we are seeing in our schools in this country, which is a real rise in young, particularly white men who are enraged by the concept of equality, who feel like women are trying to take something away from them, that people of color are trying to take something away from them. And this really simplistic idea that equity and justice is a pie and there's only so much pie to go around. Um, and if women and people of color get more pie, then I'm going to starve to death. Uh, and so I see that, unfortunately, every day in my work. And it's not every young man. There's a lot of young men that are furious about what's going on and want to help. But there is very much a disturbing trend of young men blaming women and people of color for all of their problems in the world. And we have seen the results of those anger, of that anger. Julie, the official uh, report to this point uh, early in this investigation out of London, Ontario, is that they say that the the suspect in this case, this this young man facing you know four charges of first degree murder, one charge of attempted murder, was was not officially known to police, was not officially on the record known to be any member of hate groups. Although there have been some rumblings online that there may have been some exposure or some allegiance or affiliation to some of these. groups groups what do you think it is in your studies in your lived and personal experience uh, academic and otherwise what do you think it is that's contributing to this rise in angst and anger and hate and, and in the worst case scenarios violence 
Prior to the pandemic, we still saw incredible isolation. And we know that when young people, especially young men, are isolated and they don't feel like they have a sense of community, they will seek out that community in some way. And if we don't create healthy spaces for young men to congregate and learn and chat with each other, then we know that that is those young men are very much at risk of being recruited, whether it's things like incels and the idea that you know women are the cause of all of your problems, or whether it's white supremacist organizations, xenophobic organizations, people will recruit young men who feel disenchanted, who feel uh, left out, who feel like they're not part of a community. And unfortunately, the pandemic has just cranked that volume up to 11, right? We have people who are stuck in their houses, who are consuming media all day long, who spend their entire lives online. And it's very easy to fall down a rabbit hole. And I use the example that I've created a PSA um, for stalking victims. And it's, you know, it's up on YouTube, it's called Outside of the Shadows. And it's a five minute PSA for victims of stalking and what allies can do to support them. And the next recommendation that the algorithm gives you from YouTube is how to get out of a restraining order if someone has put a restraining order against you. Like it's literally one click away from positive to really dark place. And that's just mainstream YouTube. That's not even getting into sort of the darker corners of the internet. So it's very easy for someone who feels angsty and alone to find a community really quickly. Um, and I don't think we've done enough to take that seriously. And when we think about radicalization in Canada, we still have a very racist idea of who's being radicalized. When in fact, what we're seeing is that it's a lot of young white men. Yeah, let me let me ask you for your um, I mean, this may sound like I'm teeing this up on a silver platter, but I don't know how you're going to answer this. But I suspect I do because I see people across the country saying it's very important that this is called terrorism. It's very important that the word terrorism is invoked. Do you believe that that's important here? And if so, why or why not? I think it has a purpose. But I think if we're going to call what happened in London on Sunday terrorism, then we need to call the Toronto van attack terrorism as well, which was not done. We know that there are various ways in which young men are being radicalized. And I think socially the term terrorism has some power. I think it is powerful when that term is being used because people sort of perk up and pay attention. But the word terrorism and the history of how the word terrorism is applied is in really racist xenophobic ways. So there's pros and cons. Uh, and I think we saw this with the Proud Boys, for example, when they were recently designated a terrorist organization, they were very quick to say, oh, we're disbanding. Now, no one actually believes that they're disbanding, but it did create enough stigma around associating yourself with the Proud Boys that it dissuaded some folks from participating. So I do think there's some power in that labeling, but I know that it's important to also contextualize that the way in which you know anti-terrorist policies are implemented is often targeting the wrong people you're an expert in bystander intervention and i know that and and there are a couple of of specific you know anecdotes or or historical references i'd like to make recent history um including you know incidents that have occurred on public transit or or in in the city of edmonton i'm sure you're aware that there have been uh, a series of, of violent attacks targeted attacks against uh, hijabi women uh muslim women in the city of edmonton we see this all around us um but you can engage 
bystanders or you can confront hatred or extremism or whatever the case may be in a number of different ways and people are going to be comfortable with different things you mentioned the proud boys and that that's one of interest you've got the proud boys you've got these you know these three percent or the soldiers of odin I'm, I'm a little out of my depth once we start really getting into the weeds here but they flare up from time to time you'll see it rallies the the vests or the groups um what do you think is is an appropriate and, and let me just say a safe, a prudent uh, way for people to confront this in their communities? And what if you see somebody, some guy you went to high school with walking around with one of these vests on now? What does a bystander or a civilian do? I think if you are dealing with organized terrorist groups that are marching or demonstrating in public, then I think we need to exercise as much caution as we can to keep ourselves safe. But I think, as you said, the the key is the personal connections that we have. It's like you said, the guy you went to high school with who all of a sudden is now very interested in QAnon and conspiracy theories or is like very interested in how, you know, Asian people cause COVID. Like using your personal connection to someone to try to remind them of their own humanity, but also to try and very slowly sort of chip away at who they've become and, and the things that they believe, that is what we know can be effective is using the personal connection that you have with folks. Now, if you are a person of color and your white friend is becoming radicalized, I don't think it's your responsibility to subject yourself to that in order to change them. But that's where the allyship piece comes in, right? Well, this is where white people need to be pulling aside other white people who are going down these really dark paths and try to sort of keep them onto the, the light side of life. Um, but in terms of writ large, what folks can do as everyday people who are bystanders to, you know, anti-Asian racism, or like you said, you know, Muslim women being targeted. What's really important to understand about bystander intervention is your goal is not to try to reason with the harasser. Your goal is to create a safety bubble between you and the person that is being targeted. Mm. And that's where things go off the rails. People really think their job is to tell off every creep and tell off every racist but in the moment, it's actually more important to protect the person that is being targeted. And frankly, the research shows that oftentimes you have to make a choice. You can either tell off the harasser or you can keep the victim safe, but you can't often do both safely on your own. So my advice is always prioritize the safety of the victim. Um, and that means you know maybe creating a distraction so they have an exit strategy, things like pretending to know them, um, being like, oh my God, how are you? I haven't seen you in so long. Like, any kind of way in which you can engage in conversation so they can lock eyes with you and then exit the situation. Really non-confrontational forms of intervention exist, but too often people think my only option is I got to be direct. I got to confront this guy. That feels too scary. So I'm not going to do anything, but there's actually lots more you can do that goes beyond confrontation. It's so, uh, I, I mean, I, I can think of these uh, so many different scenarios. There's, there's a fellow by the name of Manwar Khan out of Edmonton, and I remember interviewing him many years ago. He witnessed uh, what ultimately proved to be tragically a fatal beating on an Edmonton LRT uh, and, and, and subsequent to his experience as a bystander. Uh, he started a group, a group to confront hatred in the community. He became a, a community advocate and, and really has done admirable work since then. But he personally, I mean, not taking away from the victim of the attack, but Manwar himself and other people were absolutely traumatized uh, by the experience. I, I'm providing really local examples here, Julie, but it probably reiterates that everybody that's going to hear this podcast or see the show could probably provide their own examples uh, a number of years ago, an Edmonton police officer attacked by a, a knife wielding man uh, outside Commonwealth Stadium, uh, you know, 
know, stabbed, almost killed. Uh, the, the suspect went on to, 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 you know, take a U-Haul truck through downtown Edmonton and, and mow people down. And the, the surveillance video or the street video of the attack on the police officer, what was really notable about it. And I want to be fair here, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be sure to clarify, but there were people all around I mean, there were like, you know, three or four people off the top of my head based on my memory that, that in some circumstances basically watched it happen. You know, people would say, you know, this is a bit of a probably well, questionable remark, but like full, big, grown men type thing. You know, the type of scenario where you'd go, what, what the hell? Why are this cops about to get stabbed? Why aren't people jumping in? How are we hardwired as humans when we encounter a, an unexpected circumstance like this? So the flight flight response is something folks talk about a lot in the context of being victims. So you are you know, presented with you're being attacked or you're being harmed in some way and then you freeze or you fight. And that's sort of this like very simplistic understanding that we have. It's actually much more complicated than that. And it includes bystanders, exactly as you said. So folks, when we see shocking things, we can freeze and just be absolutely stunned by what happened, which, you know, oftentimes these things that happen in public are shocking. They're not expected. But more than that, we know there's this phenomenon called the bystander effect, which is when there is a crowd of folks around, we do what's called the diffusion of responsibility. So we see 10 people and we think, oh, that's 10 people that can do something. And we're all thinking that so no one reacts. But the good news about the bystander effect is that it's not inevitable. So all the first person to do something really shakes people out of their freeze response and compels them to act. So even something as simple as saying out loud, hey, What's going on here? Literally just doing that can make people standing around sort of be like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, what is going on here? And then kind of involve them in intervening. So we know the first person to do something doesn't have to do everything, but they set off kind of this chain reaction where other folks feel like, okay, I'm not going to be alone because this person's paying attention. Oh, and now this person's paying attention. And that's what emboldens people to get involved. Have have advancements in technology changed the conversation around bystander intervention or violence prevention or street harassment at all? Well, I think it has created opportunities for us to document it in different ways. So Hullaback, which is the organization that I work with, we started in 2005 when smartphones were really kind of new technology and we created an app where you could document your experience on the street. Then a little doc was on a map. We can start tracking where these things happen. So technology has allowed us, you know, with George Floyd, someone was able to record what was going on in that moment, which really changed the public conversation about it. So tools like technology have been used to increase harassment. So it's easier to take upskirt photos. It's easier to follow people. um, It's easier to stalk them. It's like there's unfortunately so many ways in which technology is used against victims. But it has also created an opportunity for us to document, which is actually one of the forms of intervention that we encourage folks to do which is recording things when you see them happening, which then emboldens the victim to be able to report it, but also changes the narrative. Because this isn't just, you know, one person of color arguing they were targeted. Here is documented evidence that I was targeted. Um, And that is how I think technology can be used to advance this conversation that, frankly, we've been having as long as public spaces have existed. Hmm. Uh, Julie S. Lalonde, our guest, if you're just tuning in, if you're streaming us live on the Mixler audio app, we wish you a good morning. Uh, Julie has mentioned we'd had audience members uh, pretty much since our show launched back in November that have been asking us to reach out to you. They've been eager to hear from you. One of them was Tracy. Uh, Back in April, as a matter of fact, she reached out to us. Uh, We had 
just spoken uh, about Emily Cave. Um, she's she's uh, she lost her husband Colby, who is an Edmonton Oiler, to a, a medical incident, a sudden medical incident, an unexpected and tragic death. And Emily uh, has been experiencing harassment online uh, as a result of, or at least connected to, her husband's passing. Really deplorable stuff. And we talked about it on the show and, and Tracy had reached out to us and she said, you know, regarding what Emily Cave has been forced to endure, you know, I, I think that Julie S. Lalonde would be great to speak to this, you know, and would be a great opportunity as well for her to speak to her, her free online bystander intervention webinars. Um, and Tracy was eager to hear you speak about that. I'm, I'm taking a look here at iHollaback.org. Um, and I'm not sure if you're involved in all of these. You can clarify, but you see there's 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 these free training sessions on things like, you know, bystander intervention, intervention to stop anti-Asian harassment or xenophobia, uh, bystander intervention to stop police sponsored violence or anti-black racist harassment, um, you know, stand up against street harassment, different events. How different is the training? How different is the subject matter? You know, whether you're talking about anti-black racism, anti-Asian racism, so-called police sponsored violence, whatever the case may be. Yeah, so the tenets of bystander intervention are very, very similar. Uh, in Canada, we've been running what's called We Stand Up trainings, which are specific to street harassment. So um, if you come to my website, you can see the schedule of the Canadian trainings. So the ones that you just talked about are trainings that have been going on in the U.S. since last spring. Um, we were really at the forefront of recognizing that, you know, the president calling it the Chinese flu is absolutely going to lead to incidents of anti-Asian racism, which we saw. So big shout outs to the folks in the U.S., um, including um, Asian Americans Accessing Justice, which is an organization that's been putting on thousands of these trainings since last spring. Um, but the goal of the We Stand Up trainings is exactly what we've been talking about, giving people tools. And in fact, the five D's of intervention which are five tools that folks can use exactly as you said, if I'm witnessing sexual harassment, so I'm witnessing tackles, someone being followed, or I'm witnessing, you know, xenophobia or transphobia, the same tenets of the tools apply. Um, and so it's really important for folks to seize this opportunity that they have, which is 60 minute training at home in your gym jams, eating your snacks, the cameras and microphones are turned off. It's very chill. And in an hour you can learn the skills to, literally transform your community. And I think as we're thinking about this new normal and getting back out into the world, it's up to all of us to really think about what do I want that normal to look like? And frankly, do I want that normal to be in which folks of color and women are targeted when they leave their houses? I would hope not. But if that's the vibe, if that's what you're thinking, then it's a matter of you taking the time to learn the skills so that you can create that community care. Julie, we're going to be talking with Angela White in uh, about an hour from now uh, from the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. And we'll, we'll be talking more about a, a vote in the House of Commons yesterday, somewhat of a remarkable result in that vote um, when it comes to the demand that the federal government drop uh, its legal fight against indigenous children. And, and that's leading the headlines, but also another story running parallel is you have a nation aghast at the discovery of these 215 bodies outside this former residential school in Kamloops, young kids, the sentencing uh, of a man in Thunder Bay, Ontario, sentenced to eight years for manslaughter for throwing a trailer hitch. 
at an indigenous woman, uh, the injuries that she sustained, she ultimately succumbed to those injuries and died about five months later. Uh, couldn't help but note the, the parallel storylines running there and the ongoing violence that indigenous women and girls, um, uh, black and indigenous women of color continue to experience in Canada and across the country. Do you think that uh, incidents, I don't say an incident, discoveries, grisly discoveries like in Kamloops, and I know that the nation is bracing itself for more. Um, do you think that these can, in a way, turn the tide when it comes to members of the public and intervening in acts of violence? I mean, uh, you know, this 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 throwing the trailer hitch at this woman in Thunder Bay is 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 one incident. Uh, but we've received a flood of messages from people that are uh, talking about, you know, the racist attitudes that, that they realized that they carried as young people uh, as part of their upbringing or as part of their surroundings and, and people are waking up in a way. Can you see public attitudes changing? Certainly. I want to, you know, echo what indigenous folks have been saying, which is if folks had read the truth and reconciliation final report in 2005, they would have read an over a hundred page long chapter about unmarked graves. Um, and they would have known that. So I understand why a lot of indigenous folks are pissed because it's like this conversation is happening six years too late. Mm. Um, but I agree with you, whether you're looking at George Floyd, whether you're looking at what happened um, with the discovery in Kamloops, that horrific case in Thunder Bay, what happened in London on Sunday, the reality is if, if we can seize those moments and turn them into concrete change, then yes, I think it can be quite powerful, but I think we need to recognize that it says a lot that we need and I say we as privileged people who are not impacted directly, that we need some sort of horrific concrete example in order to care, um, I think says a lot about our limited perspective on who is deserving of care in our communities and in our lives. Um, but I do think that, that if we choose to move beyond just recounting horrific stories and give people tools to change the culture, then I think we can harness a moment. And I think that's what you know, folks like myself are trying to do right now, which is if you're horrified that folks who are read as people of color or read as queer or read as Muslim feel unsafe in their communities, like what are you going to do about it? And frankly, posting a square on social media isn't enough. Um, and I think, like I said, right now, while we have this opportunity where we're literally on the cusp of just about to be out and about in the world again, now is the time to learn those skills so you can put them into practice once we get out and about in the world. Let me ask you this before we thank you for your time. You you contributed um, to this collection, Sick of the System, Why the COVID-19 Recovery Must Be Revolutionary. Um, can you tell us about your contribution and, and where your head's at as, as we prepare? I don't want to get ahead of myself, but with cautious optimism as we prepare to sort of reemerge from this year and a half hibernation in a way. Yeah, for me, it was important that people recognize that we have been living multiple pandemics. So last year in Canada was one of the deadliest years ever for women. So compared to 2019, we actually had significantly more women who were killed. So we had more femicide victims last year than the year prior. And that shook a lot of people because they thought, well, we've been in our houses, but the most unsafe place for a woman is in her own home. Um, and so it's important for folks to really think about, again, this idea that, oh, we just all stay home. Well, who gets to stay home? Who gets to stay home safely? Um, and how many women are living situations of violence right now? And nobody knows because we don't check in with people in the same way because we are so isolated. And so, again, I want privileged people 
who've maybe been isolated for the first time in their lives throughout the course of the pandemic and who felt fear leaving their house for the first time because of the pandemic to really think about the people in their lives who are not safe in their homes and who are unsafe whenever they leave their house. And it has nothing to do with COVID and everything to do with, you know, misogyny, racism, et cetera. So that is for me, what I really want folks to think about is I don't want to go back to the normal that we had before because the normal before was a woman killed every two and a half days. And that's not okay by me. So we have to make a concerted effort to say, what is the new normal going to look like? And it needs to be different than 2019. When you, when you wrote, uh, resilience is futile and released it. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a remarkable. What do I say? Like an expression of courage. I mean, it's your it's your personal story, the life and death and life of Julie S. Lalonde, your your personal experience dealing with a stalker for more than 10 years. Um, the response to that, I would imagine I mean, you, you must have thousands of people that personally have connected to that. Um, how have you processed some of the feedback you've received and what does that look like? Well, thank you for that lovely feedback. And yeah, it's been really overwhelming, in particular because I launched my book the day the pandemic was declared. Hmm. So um, I had one book tour, like one day of book launch, and then my tour was canceled. And so it meant that I heard from folks uh, almost easier because they were emailing me and they would see me. And so I was absolutely flooded with stories of, of people, particularly because we don't talk about stalking in Canada and yet we know it impacts a significant amount of people. We know it is a precursor to homicide. We know it's lethal, but it's just not talked about. And so I'm, I'm grateful that I was given the opportunity to break the silence on this form of violence, but it's so eerie to be hearing stories from people who are being targeted from this and who are stuck in their homes, which makes it more dangerous for them because their stalker knows where they are at all times and knows they're online at all times. Um, and so it's been a very overwhelming experience. I'm grateful that folks trust me with their story. But, you know, in many ways, I wish I was the only person that had this story uh, because it is so demoralizing to know that this happened to me and it's happening to thousands of people across the country every day. And it's not getting the attention it deserves. Um, and, I, and I really don't know what it's going to take. We had me too. We had the Gomeshi conversation. We've had so many conversations and yet victims of stalking are still not getting the spotlight they deserve frankly i mean it's such a powerful uh a piece and and uh i mean you've just said it so well it's like it's one of those scenarios where i mean what you're providing here for us right now is such an important reality check um it's so encouraging to know that people are talking about it and finding support and community and educating themselves bystanders included at the same time obviously what word do you want to use demoralizing heartbreaking so incredibly troubling that that, that that's the necessity that that's the reality right now absolutely and so i really again want folks to think about how we are normalizing mental health check-ins right now during the pandemic we're normalizing talking openly about not being okay and trying to juggle you know being a parent with being an employee and doing all of those things and and it's important for us to to maintain that post-pandemic yeah. like keep checking in on folks because there are people who are really good at faking looking well who are terrified in their homes, who are unsafe in their home. And I really, one of the things I want us to maintain post-pandemic about the last year is normalizing, checking in on folks and just making sure that we understand that not everyone's doing okay all the time. And community is essential to our survival as human beings. And I think that is one of the biggest lessons we have learned over the last year. When folks are taken away from their communities, they lose so much. Um, 
And it's important for us to think about that moving forward. How do we create community and how do we make it safe for everyone to be out and about in the world? You know, it's 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 interesting, as you said, normalizing mental health check ins. I just think there's so much wisdom to that. And, uh, and I just I quickly I don't even I can't even show it on our screen because I've just grabbed it as I, my friend Meredith had this on her Instagram story. So, you know, it's within the last 24 hours that she posted this. But it reminded me you reminded me of her message, which just says it's OK if you feel anxious about restrictions ending, if you don't want to return to work, if you gained weight in lockdown, if you're still worried about getting ill, if you feel anxious about socializing or if you feel under pressure to make plans, you are not alone. And I just kind of went, Absolutely. huh? Yeah. Yeah, very much. There's a lot of people for whom getting out of their house is safety for them right now and they desperately need to. And there are a lot of folks who have reasons to be afraid to be out and about again and who don't feel ready to just transition to, yeah, we're back to normal. Um, And I think that's why it's so important for us to talk about what is the new normal going to look like? And I think it needs to have hybrid models. And I think we need to be patient with folks who have lots of reasons for being freaked out about what's going on. And it doesn't mean that they're happy that the pandemic happened, Um, but we have to be intentional about creating community and what we want that to look like. So yeah. If, you know, here in Ontario, we're lifting restrictions this week. I know folks in Alberta restrictions are lifting and that can be exciting for some folks and scary for others. So exactly like you said, just normalize meeting people where they're at. Julie S. Lalonde, public educator, uh, author of a contributor to Sick of the System, author of Resilience is Futile, the life and death of and life of Julie S. Lalonde. Grateful for your time and your expertise today. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Make sure you give Julie a follow on Twitter as well at Julie S. Lalonde. I've been following her for a long time and she's got some great perspectives there. I appreciate the conversations that have been going on. I, we, we were really getting into uh, some some fascinating stuff there. And so I'll be honest, I, I wasn't keeping a keen eye on uh, the live chat other to note that uh, it, it's been absolutely churning this morning. And, and I know that there are a lot of conversations here and important conversations to have. Of course, we're, we're, we've broadened the, the uh, discussion with Julie Lalonde there, but the point here uh the starting point of this story is this horror out of london ontario this family absolutely and permanently torn apart with the the cold-blooded mass murder of four people four family members a grandmother i mean a grandmother and mother obviously a a parents mom and dad in their 40s and their 15 year old girl gone uh their daughter the son uh this nine-year-old boy who the entire country i think is thinking of right now um you know i I don't know if you need to i don't think you need to believe in god to say a prayer or to put energy out into the universe or whatever you do to express uh the anguish and grief that you feel the empathy that you feel uh for this young man uh i don't even know what to say uh, about this nine-year-old boy who first of all has some serious physical injuries to recover from and then and then i don't know how you characterize what the rest of his life will look like uh except to say that this entire country uh needs to be here for this young man uh in, in many ways shapes and forms i heard an imam a spiritual leader a muslim leader uh out of london speaking yesterday just just very almost 
uh, uh, not cold. That's not the right word. Numb is probably one of the words. Just uh, just absolute shock on his face, uh, describing the very early stages of trying to offer these community supports. I don't know where you begin. I do want to note Mustafa Farouk of the National Council of Canadian Muslims has been in touch with us. He sent his apologies. We had him confirmed at the top of the show. He says we have an emergency meeting. He says I have to go. Obviously understandable. We're doing this live. You know, this isn't a recorded podcast in the sense that we piece it together with interviews through the day. So we'll either have Mustafa on later in the broadcast today. He'll either join us today, which is what we're hoping for, obviously, or if not, he'll be joining us uh, tomorrow. And you can always be in touch with us as well to talk at RyanJesperson.com. We're going to cover some other news of the day. As mentioned, my conversation with Angela White of the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. Uh, She'll be joining us, Angela will, in about 45 minutes from now. And in about two minutes, we're going to talk to the mayors of Lethbridge and High River. Uh, You remember the last time that his worship, Mayor Craig Snodgrass, was on the show, the mayor of High River. Uh, He actually got gift or did he get gift? His performance here had all of you going, whoa. And uh, Chris Spearman, I know the mayor of Lethbridge, also has been a good friend of this show. And I, I know these two are all ready to go to talk about this new Alberta coal restriction policy. Uh, somebody send up fireworks and strobes and let everybody know that we're talking about coal again on Real Talk. The last time we did, uh, we saw how Albertans feel very clearly about protecting their parks. That's coming up in just a second. I wanted to remind you right now, it feels like a perfect time to talk to you about Eden Landscaping. If you want to get that sort of reality around you that feels like you're out maybe in the back country, maybe you're looking for some mature trees, they can bring those in. You know, not every project landscaping project has to start with these little itty bitty saplings they've got a team that's experienced and ready to go dropping in trees bushes shrubs of all sizes you want an immediate privacy solution Eden Landscaping figures that stuff out. Their team's been doing this for more than 20 years. You can check out their work at landscapeedmonton.ca. Sam, are you able to fire me up that video as well from our friends at Grand Dog Essentials? For for the real talkers that are joining us on YouTube, check this out and and I'll describe it for our friends tuning into the podcast. Oh, by the way, thanks. The other day we hit our millionth download. Thanks to everybody that downloads our podcast. We really appreciate it. Check this out. This is from the Grand Dog Essentials Instagram. You got to follow it. This is their this is their beef veggie puree with the green egg joint supplement okay these are the supplements that their nutritionists can you know recommend for your pup depending on what your pup needs look at these good doggos they're loving their quality raw food from grand dog essentials if you go to granddog.ca right now use the promo code real talk they'll give you 10 percent off your first time order and of course they deliver right to your door if you're in calgary edmonton or the red deer area more details at granddog.ca Well, it's been a while since we've spoken about coal on this show, specifically coal mining, open pit mining in the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains in southern Alberta. It was a conversation that dominated the headlines several months ago and and it hasn't gone away. It's just the news cycle can be fleeting and fickle. But work continues uh, behind the scenes, including, by the way, exploratory work up in those mountain ranges. It's caught the attention of environmental activists, concerned citizens and, of course, politicians at the different levels 
levels of government. That includes uh, the mayor of High River, His Worship Craig Snodgrass, the mayor of Lethbridge, His Worship Chris Spearman, who joined us live this morning. Uh, Mayors, welcome back to the show and and thanks for being here. Mayor Snodgrass, why why don't we kick it off with you? Tell us about this Alberta coal restriction policy. This is going to be news to a lot of people. Yeah, thanks for having us, Ryan. This is important. And, um, you know, this came from my discussions with the Coal Policy Committee when I met with them on April 27th, I guess it was. Um, And what Chair Wallace was very clear about, he said, you know, after I did my big spiel and everything, he said, you know, can you just write down in clear words exactly what you want to see, what the town of High River um, wants to see happen? And, you know, there's this big conversation about all this government to government and you know would I be managing all this government to government consultations kind of separately but um, that got a little bit overwhelming and so we agreed that just you know write down what you want and send it out to the municipalities and see who else is interested in signing up on uh, signing on on that and endorsing our policy so uh, when I got looking at it, I, you know, everybody's been talking about we need a new modern coal policy. And I'm like, well, that's not what Albertans are asking for. They want no coal. So let's have a coal restriction policy as to how these restrictions go. So that's where we put this together and, and then sent it out to uh, all the municipalities, rural, urban, as well as the First Nations. They all received this and we're starting to get the feedback now. So um, that's where it came from. That's where it happened. So one of the municipalities that signed on was was Lethbridge, right, Mayor Spearman? Uh, That's correct. Why is that? What was it that that prompted you to sign on? Well, uh, Mayor Snodgrass uh, presented to the Southwest Mayors and Reeves. Uh, There's about 40 municipalities in Southwest Alberta. and we uh, we listened to that. I took the message back to the Lethbridge City Council, and uh, at our last council meeting, uh, I brought forward the resolution to support uh, one policy uh, that erases all the categories as proposed by Mayor Snodgrass, and secondly, that reclamation for existing exploration be completed by uh, 2025. So. Uh, our council supported that unanimously. And I think that reflects uh, what the majority of residents in Southwest Alberta and in the city of Lethbridge believe. That's the practical side of it. And, uh, you know, the emotional side of it is that uh, many of us, you know, on our weekends, on our time off, we're spending time in the mountains and we don't want to see restricted access to areas that we've been using for years and we don't want to see the area damaged Uh, the practical side of what we're saying in the city of lethbridge is our whole economy is based on agriculture agriculture depends on water we need to have clean water and it cannot be contaminated with selenium or anything else any of the byproducts of uh, of the coal mining and you know we've got a massive 140 billion dollar investment in irrigation in agricultural development and in agricultural processing so it's really important that we continue to protect those assets they already exist and 
Most Albertans are saying the economic benefits of coal mining just are not worth it. The mountains mean too much to us. Fresh water means too much to us. Fresh air means too much to us. And uh, so I think the actions that municipalities are taking are reflective of what we've seen in the polls that have been conducted. Uh, Albertans uh, value the mountains. They value fresh water and uh, they value access to the mountains over coal mining. Mayor Snodgrass, is there any sort of a binding power to this? I mean, what, what, what would be the implications of every municipality in Alberta signed on? Well, what's going to happen is whoever endorses this, uh, we've got a number of them now, and, and I'm just going to take that list back to the Coal Policy Committee as part of our recommendation as to what should be done for the future of this um, going forward in Alberta, um, specifically to the eastern slopes. But, um, you know, and then hopefully that will form what, uh, you know, the recommendations that the committee is going to be taking back to Alberta Energy, the Alberta government, Minister Savage, um, to give them their recommendation as to where coal mining's future sits in this province. So, you know, binding, absolutely not. There's nothing binding, but um, it all comes down to government decision at the end of the day, so. Mayor Spearman, you sounded like you wanted to chime in there. No, uh, I think what I was, concerned about is some of the uh, feedback from the Alberta government that water is not an issue and people commenting on water it's not relevant and wow that's probably the biggest issue we have in the city of Lethbridge. <laughs> yeah I mean I'm not I mean to be frank uh, mayors I'm not I'm not sure that anybody believes anything that the Alberta government's saying on coal right now or the implications of mining or protecting parks or protecting water or protecting the air and and quite frankly I think you'd have to be an idiot right now to trust the government on any of those fronts. But what did this tell you, Mayor Spearman, the pushback from citizens? Uh, Lethbridge, I mean, Southern Alberta, like you said, I mean, regionally, people are going to have different concerns. There's going to be different things on people's radar. Somebody in Grand Prairie might have different concerns than somebody in Cardston or Tabor or whatever the case may be. Um, how would you characterize? I mean, you're, you're a seasoned politician uh, in the autumn of your career, as my dad would put it. Um, how has this resonated with you as a opposed to other issues that have raised the public's ire? Well, uh, if, if I to start with uh, being uh, sort of towards the end of my career, I think uh, my legacy, if, if there is one, uh, would be to say, you know, I did my best on my watch to protect the assets that we have in Alberta and uh, keep them for future generations. I think it's important to do that. Uh, I, you know, when I'm in the mountains, I'm there with my family, with my kids and my grandkids. And I think we all appreciate the beauty of the mountains and what we have. And uh, maybe some Albertans take it for granted, but I, what I'm really encouraged by is the feedback on the public opinion polls that have been done where uh, the vast majority of Albertans say the mountains are too important to us to uh, to damage them with, with coal mining. So, uh, you know, I fully appreciate there are some communities like in the Crow's Nest Pass, and, I'm, you know, you could have the mayor of the Crow's Nest Pass on another day. I know his council split on it, on the issue, but certainly there are many in the Crow's Nest Pass who think coal mining is important and it ne- they need something to bring the economy back in the, that area. But most Albertans are saying that's not worth it. There must be something else we can do uh, that's less environmentally damaging. And, you know, the life of these gold mines is 
20 to 30 years. You know, that's a blip in the history of the Rocky Mountains and the freshwater. And the last thing we want is uh, lasting damage to uh, our environment and our water supply. Uh, we will reach out to Mayor uh, Blair Painter out of Crozet's Pass. That's a great suggestion. Um, Mayor Snodgrass, what have you, when, when it comes to this, I mean, I think a lot of people right now are going to be like, oh, they're, they're talking about coal on Real Talk, and, and there's a whole bunch of other things going on, right? I mean, you, you've got violence in the Middle East. We have this devastation, this racist, this hate crime in London, Ontario. We've got the story of reconciliation across Canada. There's a, why are we talking about coal right now? And I think that some people may have been led to believe over the past couple of months that everything ground to a halt, that all the Save Alberta Parks lawn signs kind of rolled in and saved the day and that nobody has anything to worry about anymore. But that's not exactly the case, is it? No, this is unfortunately, this is just another major issue that we're dealing with. And yeah, here you're absolutely right. We we have uh, we have a long list of serious, serious issues that that we're all dealing with. And. You know, but the, this coal discussion, I even had a reporter from um, somewhere <laughs> that uh, I won't give him a plug, right? Got in trouble for that last time. So what all... You can plug some maybe. outlets on here, Mayor, just just not others. <laughs> so they, they were asking me, they, they said, well, somebody brought this up. I thought this was all done. And I'm like, no, it's not all done. Just because they rewound the policy and put the old 76 policy back in play. And just because we've got a pause, that's all it is, is a pause on the exploration. Just because we have that, we are so far away from being done and having an actual conversation about this as to where we're headed that, um, you know, the coal policy committee has like, this is a monstrous task that they're, that they've taken on. And, all of the individuals that are involved with it they're all heroes for us for for taking this on and chair wallace is the guy's hardcore and he is not going to screw around with this or let the government push him around and the committee around with this so um, it's just another one on the list unfortunately ryan that we have to get because if we if we do not get this done and coal mining is allowed to proceed there will be it's not if there will be the harmful effects of coal mining, it exists in every single coal mine, selenium contamination, and of course, the destruction of the landscapes. It's just the way it is. And those you cannot rewind. Um, Atrium Coal came and, you know, they presented to us, and we were pretty clear with where we were at with them, but they last week they came to Foothills County, to their council, and, and had a chat with them. and. Foothills County did an excellent job in really grilling them on, you know, what are you doing about the water? What are you doing about the selenium? Um, and they had no answers. They've got some cool graphics that somebody put together for them. They didn't spend a lot of money on it, but, um, you know, what they're, what they're saying is, well, we have advanced technology that hasn't been used in the past and all these things. And, you know, it's different than the historical stuff that's, that's gone on, um, you know, and the question is, well, what is that? Well, it's a pond. So, you know, sorry, but they have been used in the past. They have failed in the past. And if, if that's the new technology that they're coming up with, <clears throat> we need to be very, very concerned. And the more that Foothills County pressured them on it, the weaker their uh, response came back to it. Um, 
you know, even to the question, well, do your ponds have to be lined? And, and Atrium said, well, you know, we'll line them if we have to, I guess. Well, if we're, if somebody's going to make them line them, well, selenium leaches, that's the problem. So if they're not lined and you don't have that in your technology already, you know, they keep talking about how great their scientists are and everything that are working on all this new technology, but they haven't even got to that stage. And, and they follow all of it up with, you know, these are all just conceptual plans. So there is absolutely no plan for a new coal mine company or an old one to deal with selenium properly. It does not exist. It's snake oil. Unfortunately, the government is was sold on it that this was going to happen. Our MLA is sold on it. Our MP is sold on it. I think all MLAs are sold on this right now. But um, so that's why we got to keep pressuring on to this thing and telling them the answer is no. The risks are far too high. Um, Chris said it very, very well to existing businesses. You know, the number of jobs that coal will bring in, you compare that to what's going to be lost if we lose our water. And the, the agribusiness, especially down south, we've got our own up here, but, you know, immediately it's, it's a big threat um, down in that Lethbridge area as to what's going to go on if, if we get contamination, because once you have it, you don't rewind it. And we are not willing to take that risk, period. I, I mean, you say that, you know, all MLAs are, are sort of towing the government's line on this one. Uh, if I'm understanding correctly what you're saying, I, I don't know how much longer that would be the case, Mayor. Like, I, I see, I mean, you've got, you know, Richard Godfried, who's, who's been a loyal, you know, representative resigning as chair of the Calgary caucus, you know, not to mention... You know, I mean, obviously, we've had a couple of MLAs booted out of caucus. Um, you know, you've had uh, Minister Leela here speak out and, and demand that the premier apologize. You're starting to see kind of cracks in that foundation a little bit. Um, I'll get to you in a second, Mayor Spear, but, but I can't ignore Snodgrass. You're, you're, you're kind of rolling your eyes a little bit. Uh, I, I just what about what I'm saying is inaccurate or what am I stirring up within you? Oh, no, no, it's all accurate. That's the problem, right? It just keeps going. It's on and on and on with uh, with this group. And, so then, but so then that leads me to believe that why in the hell would an elected representative in their right mind? We all know this is not nobility that's prompting them all to step forward. It's because their constituents are telling them that they will not reelect them unless they speak out. That's why they're signing these letters. That's why they're saying these things. That's why they're sticking their necks out for the first time in a long time. What MLA, what MP for that matter, in their right mind would go to the wall to endorse the most unpopular economic initiative this government has rolled out in its brief history and i would challenge anybody on that point well it's all a reflection in my mind it's all a reflection of what your what your inner integrity is all about um and in in my words with the way i reflect on integrity is uh choosing to do what's right over what's fun fast or easy um or politic politically favorable to you with with the premier um, you know, we have yet to have a single MLA really take a stand against this. Um, R.J. Sigurdsson out of Highwood is the only one that's really said anything. And he spoke to rewinding the policy. That was it. But, you know, and kudos to him for doing that. But as far as really sticking their necks out, no, they'll do it for COVID. But um, nobody's done it um, 
not one MLA has has really taken a stand against coal mining um, to reflect the to reflect the will of their constituents, which is their actual job. That's not taking place. Somebody's got to start it. Mayor Spearman, have you ever have you ever I'm putting you on the spot here. Have, have you ever eaten at Roy's Place restaurant? Are you familiar with this restaurant? This, yeah, this, it's on the way up. It's on Highway 2. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I keep hearing about this place. And, and I, is it cinnamon buns that made him famous? There's something that made him famous that was really speaking my language. I think it might have been cinnamon buns. I don't remember. But Keith Carlson is the owner and the chef there. Um, he was on You Gotta Eat Here, that great that great culinary show. Mayor Spearman's wondering, where in the hell is Jesperson going with this? Uh, Keith, is, yeah. <laughs> Keith is watching the show today. And his tweet caught my attention because he used the hashtag RealTalkRJ. And because his Twitter bio names him as the next MLA for Livingstone McLeod, which would which would lead, lead me to believe that he believes that maybe he'll be. That's your riding, wouldn't it be, Mayor? Or, or a riding right near to where you are? That would be Mayor Snodgrass, right? Livingstone McLeod would be your riding. Pardon me. Uh, uh, yeah, you'd, you'd be either Phillips or, or uh, I can't remember. The, that's bad. I can't remember. The Nathan Newdorf. Thank the you. Gift. Newdorf. That's right. You've got this. You've got the split there. Lethbridge has, yeah. you know, equal representation in Lethbridge. Uh, pardon me. So Mayor Snodgrass, maybe he'll be your next MLA. But he says, he says, I'm wondering if, if you, you get the mayor on record asking about Roger Reed's involvement. That's the MLA uh, about his communication is the MLA of the area involved. Have you reached out to MLA Reed? Have you had specific correspondence with him? I would imagine the answer is yes. <laughs> ah, well played politically, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I have in, in the early, in the first couple of months or so. But, um, you know, Roger, Roger is a good man, but he's, uh, he's caught with this one. He is in support of the coal mines um, right now. He has yet to say otherwise. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's just the way it is. Yeah, but so not to state the obvious, though, but when you've got when you've got two elected officials at different levels of government and one of them is spearheading this initiative to get other municipalities signing on to the coal restriction policy. And then the MLA representing the same constituents in the same area is going to the wall to support the mining. I mean, that to me implies that one of you, either you or him, are directly ignoring the best interests of your constituents. Yeah, it isn't me. So um, that's that's just too clear. Um, Roger Roger was uh, has been very close with the Crow's Nest community, and going back to the election, um, very close. And you know, the, this coal thing was kept very very quiet in the last election. Sure uh, was by all parties, right? It was just silent. Um, I'll tell you right now, that is not going to happen in the next election. And the next election is going to take place prior to any of these projects proceeding. So everybody needs to start paying attention to what's going on. And that's why the municipalities have, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, I've been challenged a lot. You know, this is overstepping your municipal government boundaries. Um, bullshit. No, it's not. This affects my community. And that's what we are all about. Exactly what Mayor Spearman was talking about, too, that um, there are no boundaries on this one. This is ridiculous that that we got snake oiled or our government got snake oiled into this plan. And um, we're not putting up with it. If our MLAs, if our MPs won't do it for us, we'll take it on ourselves. We will let Alberta or let the government know what Albertans think. And 
you know, we've got uh, the town of Tofield, the town of Grimshaw, the town of Staveley, village of Warburg, Lethbridge County, city of Lethbridge, town of Agerville, and of course, town of High River. Those are all the ones that have given us signed endorsements right now, as well as, um, you know, for our direct coal restriction policy. Um, there's also a number of communities that are kind of sitting on the fence, right? And that's concerning to me. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of these individuals and, and in talking with them, you know, some of them are just flat out scared of repercussions from the provincial government if they go against the government's wish. Um, you know, and I, I said the last interview, Ryan, that if that's where we're at, that our municipalities are um, afraid to take a stand on something for fear of retribution on a certain project or a grant or something that is a disaster in this province and that is not what we are about we talk about issues we deal with issues one at a time we don't combine them with your swimming pool whether you need the grant for it and you're not going to say anything about coal mining because you're worried about your grant for your swimming pools are two separate conversations so um you know, the, there's only one community that has supported the coal mining and supported the past, and that's uh, the town of Vulcan. Their, uh, their council was, uh, I think, 3-3 or 4-3 um, to, to uh, not support our letter. Um, the town of Nanton, they had a discussion about it yesterday. They are deferring any decision to June 21st. Uh, town of Okotoks, they just received our letter as information. They didn't want to take a stand on it. I don't know where it'll go in the future, if anywhere. Um, town of Canmore, you know, directly in these areas, the town of Canmore, we got a letter back from them um, stating they didn't have time to deal with it. What? Um, yeah. So, you know, the town of Rocky Mountain House, they they didn't you know, directly endorse our, our uh, restriction policy, but they did, <clears throat> they did send us a letter and, you know, and which is going to Jason Nixon, Minister Savage, everybody, right? So, um, you know, and they're, they're saying that Rocky Mountain House believes that a transparent, accountable, collaborative and regulatory approach that is subject to extensive consultation, environmental consideration, cost benefit analysis and review of regulatory processes and regulations will ultimately lead to the best decision regarding these proposed developments. Um, yeah, all, all of that is not going to be met with, um, with this coal mining. The, the history um, should tell us more than enough than, than what we need. But, you know, the, the biggest thing I wanted to get out is that the residents of Alberta um, need to, you know, forget the MLAs. It's a waste of time. Get to your municipal governments and challenge them to at least get this, our uh, document onto a meeting, have the conversation and talk about it and make a decision as to which way you're going to go on it. This is extremely important um, and needs to take place. So that that's just where we're at. But. It'll be interesting to see. I'm uh, I'm, I'm a little blown away by uh, by Canmore's response, but uh, I, I have a lot to learn about the way that that 
jurisdictions vote right i mean i've never i've never you know to be fair to to banff kananaskis mla miranda rosen i've never interviewed her personally i've only read interviews that she's done but it, it was always wild to me you'd picture like if, if you were just making assumptions and you know what they say about people that do uh but you'd, you you might assume that that you'd, you'd think banff kananaskis or banff canmore might have kind of one of these granola chewing birkenstock wearing hippie type legislative representatives but but Miranda Rosen was was actually, you know, one of the ones that was speaking quite openly against covid protocols, masking protocols, et cetera. So I've always got a lot to learn about understanding how jurisdictions vote. Uh, don't get me started on how Alberta votes provincially, then federally. Look at Edmonton. Right. Edmonton. Absolutely bizarre. Provincially will go all but one. They'll vote NDP all but one. They send one UCP MLA to the legislature. And then in the federal election, they'll go all but one conservative. Right. And, and send one NDP. MP. I can never figure it out. It never makes sense. I will suggest this. Uh, two years is an eternity but between now and, and the next election, if that's when it is. Um, if the 2019, if April 2019 was, was the election, was the referendum on carbon tax, as it was described by then opposition leader Jason Kenney, I would humbly suggest that at this point, it's looking like 2023 might be a referendum on curriculum and coal. And I think it'll be interesting to see where Albertans are going to land on that in, in these different jurisdictions, most especially in the city of Calgary, which is going to be the huge swing, if you ask me, when it comes to 2023. Mayors, I know you have a lot to get to here uh, during your day, but I want to ask you a couple of things. Uh, has nothing to do with coal. Uh, or at least probably very little to do with coal. Uh, Mayor Spearman, we, we spoke yesterday uh, about the, the opioid crisis, uh, w- which is undoubtedly an enormous issue in Alberta and British Columbia and across the country. Now, uh, we know that your city, Lethbridge, saw its funding pulled for arches. And uh, as citizen journalist Kim Siever was reporting yesterday, you, you've seen a doubling of opioid-related deaths uh, in the past three-month period as composed to the year before. How do you approach this as the mayor of Lethbridge? Probably the most tragic city issue in our city. Uh, really, we haven't uh, dealt with the issue. We don't have the needed supports to help people who are in crisis. We don't have the supported housing. We don't have the needed treatment. Uh, when we lost the supervised consumption, we really lost connection uh, with the with the majority of the users. So there there is a, a smaller mobile trailer. Uh, that people can access but certainly the number of uses went down and uh, the challenge is how do we fix this going forward people are very concerned uh, about drug related crime uh, that uh, and addiction issues side issues homeless people uh, living in our parks and uh, those types of things but unless we can get a handle on the on the issue and have a strategy going forward uh, it's it's going to be a big problem. We've we've created a uh, community well-being and safety strategy. We're involving businesses and people in the community in that to inform people uh, about the issues, about the implications, and have the community come forward to us with uh, some recommendations. We've had some unfortunate uh, public hearings where uh, supports for people with addiction were voted down. And, uh, you know, a lot of opposition, NIMBY type of opposition. And uh, we're, we're just nowhere in terms of dealing with the issue. No progress. Nowhere. No progress. Uh, Mayor Snodgrass, how, how does it impact a, a smaller community, relatively speaking, like High River? Do you, do you see it? Is, is, is it? is it undeniable in your own community? Uh, you're talking about the opioid? Yeah. 
Yeah, um, you know, not on the level of the uh, as the bigger centers, but you know, I I have you know hands-on first experience with what happens when you um, with this crisis, and the reason is is because I own a funeral home in High River. That's my real job, and um, we have a contract with the medical examiners in the coroner's office out of Calgary, so we do all the sudden death transfers. Um, and yeah, I see it. I see it firsthand, and that's that was the importance of these supervised consumption sites is that they were supervised, and um, these people with, that are struggling with these addictions um, were able to do it in a safe environment rather than in the basement of their home, um, and that's where, unfortunately, without them, that's that's where we end up is is doing the transfers out of the basements of these homes. And it, it's it's very real, you know, it's real in High River, um, you know, especially after COVID hit, we had a little bit of a spike in this town because of all the CERB payments and the extra money that some of these individuals were, were able to access. And um, we had three sudden deaths in one week because of drug overdoses and, and uh, you know, so that, you know, I get, we're, most people are blind to it. You don't see it in Eye River. Um, it's because it's hidden. It's because these people have to resort to the basement and the rest of us, rest of people don't see it. So they don't understand it, but that's a horrible decision by our provincial government to, uh, to defund that stuff. Um, in closing, I want to ask the two of you, I'll be speaking with uh, Angela White from the Indian Residential School Survivors Society coming in, a, in about 15 minutes or so. Um, obviously, the, the entire nation, I think, is is uh, what, do you, what do you say right now is taking pause to try to process um, what uh, elders and residential school survivors have been telling us uh, existed uh, for decades, for many, many years and we're learning more about uh, Canada's uh, legacy, um, a, a deplorable and atrocious legacy of residential schools. We're talking about reconciliation and the conversations are are expanding to include many different approaches and many different discussions. And I think that if, if there's one thing that I'm encouraged by, it's that people at, a, at an individual level are starting to ask, what can I do? What do I need to do? And how am I going to apply what I'm feeling right now in, in my daily or in my personal life? Um, as community leaders, uh, Mayor Spearman, how are you processing uh, what we've discovered, so to speak, uh, a couple of weeks ago? What are you hearing from your community members and how is it impacting uh, people in and around the city of Lethbridge, including uh, nearby indigenous communities? Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Uh, we've had a reconciliation Lethbridge advisory committee in place for about four years now who've been giving us good advice. And one of the things we've uh, tried to do is is to work with Indigenous people and get their input and advice on issues like this. And I think that's going to help us going forward. Uh, there's a lot of people that uh, want to, to do something immediate. And the worst thing I think we can do as non-Indigenous people is do something uh, that we think will help. And what they've told us in these meetings is uh, don't do anything about us without us. In other words, consult us. So we're in a listening phase at the moment. Uh, we're saying, okay, what is there? what things can we do locally to improve and, and they can't just be symbolic. 
you know, uh, people are suggesting we, we change the name of Indian Battle Park, which is the big park in the River Valley at Lethbridge. Uh, we have a subdivision called Indian Battle Heights. The flag for the city of Lethbridge is the flag from Fort Whoopup. Fort Whoopup was uh, a whiskey trading post that took advantage of Indigenous people, trading them whiskey for Indigenous goods and creating all kinds of complications and harm for uh, long uh, for addictions long term. So there are some opportunities there, but we don't really want to do anything unless the Indigenous people themselves and their elders, with the support of their elders, make recommendations. Uh, we're not going to just sort of say, this is a disaster. Uh, it's a tragedy. This is what happened in uh, in uh, Kamloops. And we know that we're right beside the largest Indigenous reserve in Canada, the Blackfoot uh, Blood Reserve. And these types of issues uh, are, have happened here. At our last city council meeting, we had Elder Leroy Little Bear, who is a professor at the University of Lethbridge, come and speak to us on uh, how we can respond to this tr terrible tragedy in, in Kamloops and what the local history has been. So there are people who are scarred locally, but the important thing is to listen to the Indigenous people and help them guide us. How can we reconcile our relationship how can we reconcile our history and uh, one other thing we're doing and we were doing it prior to uh, the news of this tragedy is we have uh, negotiated a memorandum of understanding uh, with the blood tribe and it's based on four points and uh, certainly uh, we want to work with them our city motto that's behind me in latin it means gateway to opportunity and i say it means gateway to opportunity for everyone, for immigrants, uh, for refugees, for our indigenous people, and everyone who lives in the city of Lethbridge uh, should have the same opportunities when it comes to housing, when it comes to employment. Uh, and we need to solve problems uh, we've had here for decades, R racism, uh, discrimination, uh, those things we have to address. And until we get past those, then there's no quick fixes, uh, but it's to create community understanding that the, the most important thing we can do is develop a positive relationship with our Indigenous people. A couple of years ago, we adopted the word, the Blackfoot word, Oki, as the official greeting for the city of Lethbridge, and that means welcome in Blackfoot hmm. and welcome to all. So we have to have relationships based on respect. We need to make sure that everybody's participating in the prosperity uh, that is Southern Alberta. And we need to work with each other to make sure that everyone is benefiting. And we have work to do. Mayor Snodgrass, one of one of Alberta's 25 former residential schools was St. Joseph's in High River. I wonder how much the average person knows that. I'll be, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to bullshit anybody. I, I wouldn't have even been able to say 25. I wouldn't be able to tell you where they were until I sought out that information recently. And, and I've been trying to learn a little bit more. Uh, well, I've been trying to learn a lot more, quite frankly, but but enough to be having informed conversations that are moving us forward here. How are the people of High River processing this and, and what's your community doing about it? Um, yeah, so St. Joseph's, um, also known as Dunbo Industrial School, or it was known as the High River Industrial School. It's 
um, straight east of Okotoks, actually, on the banks of the Highwood River just before it meets the bow. Um, and, you know, it's a similar, on a smaller scale, but a similar thing happened about 10 years ago um, where the discovery of about 25 graves of, of children um, that perished at that school were, were found because of um, the flood in 1996 um, eroded the bank enough that it exposed some of the caskets. Um, that's how it was discovered. And, you know, the, there was a reburial ceremony and everything, and there's a great YouTube video that the kids of uh, Strathcona Tweedsmere did on it. Um, but I, I'll tell you what, here, here's where I'm at with it. I, I'm very close with uh, residents of, our, of Eden Valley uh, reserve west of High River here and because of the funeral work I do. Um, and I knew about the Dunbow School, I knew about that, but I tell you what, I had no understanding at all as to that was a residential school and what we're learning now about the residential schools like this is, um, it's really overwhelming to really learn as to what this stuff was all about. And I think that's where the majority of the population is, is they're getting woken up as to what this was all about. Um, and fortunately, you know, High River is a member of the Calgary Metropolitan Region Board, which is the city of Calgary and the nine municipalities, urban and rural, that, that surround the city of Calgary. Um, and last week, we just started our um, Indigenous Awareness Workshops, and there's uh, four or five of them, if I remember right, and um, led by some quality individuals. And, um, and the first meeting that we had last week, I, I tell you what, I came away from that absolutely overwhelmed going, you know, what do we do? How do we, you know, how do you even begin um, to write this thing? And, you know, Mayor Spearman, they've been dealing with it a longer than, longer than, you know, Little High River has. And, but it's important that all of our communities do start to get involved. And, um, you know, even since then we've, We've been working with uh, our First Nations groups on another project, but um, and we're having a meeting tomorrow about that that I'm involved with, and I'm going to be bringing up a lot of this stuff as to you know what do we do, how do we do it, um, and and how do we try to start to make some of this right. But uh, Chris nailed it on the head that it's you know, nothing about us without us. And that's directly from the First Nations. And that's where we start is that, you know, we can't just go doing all our symbolic things with, without involving the First Nations group and, and making sure they have uh, the voice as to where we're headed with this. So yeah, uh, an enormous amount of work to do yet, but um, it's overwhelming. There's just, that's the only word I can come up with it right now. Yeah. I appreciate your candor, mayors, and, and for taking those questions. I appreciate the work that you continue to do. Um, I, I've got somebody asking me here, Craig, and I don't know the answer. Uh, Mayor Spearman, we know that, you, that you've uh, announced that you will not seek re-election. Mayor Snodgrass, have you decided whether or not you will? Yeah, what the hell? I'm having fun. 
Yeah. Is that an exclusive? Yeah, I knew you were going to poke that one. That's the first well, of course I am. This, this is how we get exclusives. And so Sarah Hoyles will push that out right now that uh, exclusively as announced on Real Talk, uh, High Rivers Mayor, uh, High Rivers popular mayor, Craig Snodgrass will seek reelection. Uh, we appreciate you letting us know. Uh, let me tell you this in closing. Um, country music superstar and environmental activist Corb Lund is, is among the members of our live audience this morning. Uh, he says, after watching this coal thing develop over the last year, it feels to me like the government's counting on Albertans either being under the impression that the coal issue has been resolved or that the public just gets burned out on it. This is a long fight and we can't take the pressure off. We've seen some really impressive results in terms of getting the government's attention, but we have to keep pushing. He says, Craig Snodgrass is my kind of mayor. He's right about the fact that we can't let the government get away with this because we only have one shot. Once the government's contaminated and our grandkids will be dealing with it, once the Rockies are torn up, it's impossible. He says, keep pushing, folks, and kudos to mayors Spearman and Snodgrass for standing up to these people. That from Corb Lund. Uh, I'll echo his gratitude and thanks for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Yeah, Corb is another hero, so he's doing an excellent job. Thanks very much for keeping the conversation going, Ryan. You bet, fellas, and thanks for reaching out. That's the mayor of High River, his worship, Craig Snodgrass, the mayor of Lethbridge, his worship, Chris Spearman. Uh, You can let us know what you think about what you've just heard. Obviously, the conversation on coal will continue. Real Talk's been proud to have been driving a lot of that conversation because you, the most engaged media audience in Western Canada, demand it and expect it of us, and we're grateful for that. Uh, You can always send us an email to info at Ryan Jesperson, uh, talk rather, at ryanjesperson.com. Brenda says Craig should be backed by Jespo. Uh, If Brenda's talking about an official endorsement consider it done i will go on the record this is my first official endorsement for the 2021 fall municipal elections in the province of alberta i officially endorse the incumbent mayor of high river craig snodgrass you can stamp it you can put that down for all that matter you can draw it with your finger into wet concrete and let it dry snap a photo and tell your friends in high river that craig snodgrass deserves re-election we're going to get to some of your comments coming up in just a moment about our our so-called lead story i hate calling it that it's a really brutal way to describe it but it's the story that that canadians geez can you believe it you know it feels like it what's it been over the past couple of years the past few years where i say this is the lead story no that's a lousy way to put it this is the story that 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 has canadians absolutely appalled and then you'll go well which one it's just that kind of a news cycle right now um i'm talking about the murder the mass murder of virtually an entire family a nine-year-old boy surviving an attack a 20-year-old man uh, in custody facing four charges uh, four counts of first-degree murder one of attempted murder after a family was targeted police say based on their ethnicity or their religion they're calling it a hate crime uh, investigators at different levels are cooperating to determine whether or not terrorism related charges are appropriate we're going to get to your comments on that mustafa farouk the ceo of the the uh, national council of canadian muslims has, has sent his regrets an emergency meeting which is completely understandable today um, as they work on their advocacy efforts uh, and others obviously providing community supports and other important supports at this time i would imagine mustafa will be on the show either later today we can uh, pull that audible we can make that happen no problem or tomorrow morning but we do want to give you a chance to take the floor also in just a moment i'll talk to Andrew 
Angela White of the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. Yeah, I hate to put it like this, but that's another one of the stories that Canadians are appalled at right now uh, and, and trying to wrap their minds around. These conversations, these difficult conversations are made possible because we have a, a roster of Real Talk builders that not only keep us on the air, but allow us to continue to grow the depth of our coverage, grow the size of our team, et cetera. And that includes the team at Westworld Computers. Our studio is powered by Westworld Computers, and they can do the same for you, whether it's your home, whether it's your workplace. They've got the entire Mac lineup on offer like they have for the last 40 years. And don't forget about their service department. You can book an appointment right now at westworld.ca. They're absolutely customer focused, which means providing the best advice on what can be salvaged, refurbished, or or maybe what's best to retire. If that's the case, remember, they transfer the data from your old computer, your old device to the new one for free. It's all part of the customer service at westworld.ca. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, that's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. Thank you for the mass outpouring of interest when it comes to those Jespo Special Peanut Buster Parfaits, those $1.99 ones. The offer is now closed, but that's because they're making way for the Father's Day Dairy Queen Cake promotion. All you have to do, you show up, you mention Real Talk or Jespo, they're going to give you five bucks off your Father's Day cake of course you can order those in advance or you can walk in and pick one up they're also collecting donations for the stollery children's hospital foundation at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park also a big shout out to the teams at sherwood and saint albert dodge those rams are in high demand this summer as everybody's looking for something to pull the boat the trailer or something to get them out into the backwoods and of course as you've been hearing here on the show you know that selection right now is a bit of an issue any dealership's going to tell you that there's a lot of factors at play mostly these microchips but sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, in addition to their already impressive selection, are able to share their inventory so you get the best choice, whether you're looking for a half-ton, three-quarter, or a big one-ton hauler, you'll find the best selection of Ram at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. We'll get to Angela White in a moment. We wanted to reach out to our our audience. Well, we wanted to essentially provide an opportunity for our audience members to have a say here. We're grateful for those that join us live uh, in our live chat on YouTube, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Of course, we're easy to find. Just search Real Talk Ryan Jesperson. You know, Jake says uh, regarding this attack on this family, the, the the murder of these four family members in London, Ontario. He says, Jake says, it really bothers me that these are called acts of violence. He says, call it what it is. It's terrorism. Tiana says this is absolutely a terrorist act. This is a hate crime. Dwayne says fear and hate aren't the same thing. This is an issue that that's been popping up. Uh, the use of the phrase Islamophobia, and we've seen some prominent uh, Muslim and for that matter, non-Muslim voices, but, but the Muslim ones are the ones that matter most, quite frankly, in the context of this conversation, pushing back against the use of the word Islamophobia, right? You know, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, Islamophobia. Well, spiders are kind of scary, right? If you have a fear of spiders, you have arachnophobia, right? Islamophobia. Well, what does that say about Muslims? It's a point, quite frankly, to be honest with you, I had not even considered until literally last night, like 12, 14 hours ago. And I'm reading these tweets and and all of a sudden it kind of hit me. I go, I've never 
I've never even thought of that. It's not been on my radar. I hope that this is an exercise that happens to you as frequently as it does to me as we gather in community here on Real Talk every single morning. I feel like every day or at least a couple times a week, there's this moment where you go, huh? Dwayne making a good point. Fear and hate are not the same thing. You may say, well, what's the preferred vernacular? What about an anti-Muslim hate crime? That's what I've seen some of these community leaders propose. Some random guy says, when you decide one day that you can just run over a family with your truck because of their race or their religion, who's the one who's actually afraid here or who's the one who's actually scary here? Jillian says, again, notice how the conservatives are behind the times, you know, denying the impact of residential schools. We find bodies. What was it? Four years ago, voting against that government bill, calling out Islamophobia. Innocent Muslims murdered again, says Jillian. I look forward to speaking with with voices, uh, advocates and representatives and voices. And of course, we will on the show in the days to come. About whether or not they think that votes like that out of the House of Commons would actually mean anything. I'm not getting anybody off the hook here. I'm just curious to know what the experts will say. Community leaders, spiritual leaders will say would be actually effective legislation or action from elected officials. I'd be curious to know. Tiana says, you know, the thing is, you know, this has been brought up before. There's sort of a general comment of of passively noting acts of violence and hate, and that allows them really to to escalate. Eric says, when I was young, we used to make racist jokes, you know, telling ourselves that it didn't harm anybody. We didn't hate anybody. We just had it hardwired that we were somehow better. And Eric says, now that I'm grown up, I feel sad about it. I appreciate that, Eric. What a conversation we had with Dr. Jody Carrington the other day. It's I, of, of all of the things that are, uh, to be quite, just to put it plainly, that are blowing up my mentions on social media. It's the people that continue to revisit that conversation with Dr. Jody Carrington. I think it was, it was like last Thursday, right? Or something like that. It was like mid to late last week. And uh, Dr. Carrington joined us and we talked about this and we talked about processing anguish and, and grief and anger and sorrow. And she talked about her own background. She talked about her own personal perspective. It was on Thursday morning. You can find it. You can subscribe to our podcast. You can find it on our YouTube channel. She talked about being racist to her core, not currently, not not in a way that impacts her actions right now. But she described her journey. What did she say? I'm a 45 year old white chick with a Ph.D. Isn't that what she said? With a Ph.D. Or a white girl, white girl, white chick, something like that. She just kind of spat it out. You know, I'm a white girl with a You know, and she and she goes on and she just as she does. You know, Jody Carrington, when you interview her, you kind of put on your five point seatbelt because you never know which way it's going to go. And it's not only because of what she brings to the table, but I feel as an interview, it's what she brings out of me. She has this kind of it feels like a co-host type thing. It doesn't feel like an interviewer interviewee thing. And she brought it out. And and I'm thinking of the same things that Eric's thinking. I think of so many shitty little comments that I made stupid jokes that I made as a kid that I'm appalled by. As a matter of fact, I I like the way that Eric, I mean, I sit here and I try to think of words that fit. Like, how do you, what, what word will convey how horrific all of this is? And, and not just the residential schools, but the attitudes 
of people in Canada, including me and including Eric, that over the years have created an environment that have made these attitudes and the perpetuation of these attitudes permissible. And Eric saying, I just feel sad about it. How are we all reconciling this in, in, in our personal journeys? Scott says, I, I, I don't say this to be a jerk. There are so many stories around this province and, and this country that it just feels like it's too much for me to truly care about all of it because my heart is overwhelmed. That from Scott. And who could blame anybody for feeling that way? You know, Scott qualifies it saying, I'm not saying this to be a jerk. I understand where Scott's coming from. How can you possibly, I mean, if once you start talking about deaths of children in care and you recognize and acknowledge that things aren't fixed now, then how do you think about anything else? Let me, let me get, you know, really heavy, especially heavy for, for a moment. You know, when you, when you hear people talking about unearthing, you know, these graves of children, these unmarked graves, how do you think about anything else? And then you hear about, child sexual abuse and then how do you think about anything else that there are children right now in abusive circumstances that that these so-called lockdowns or at least the semi-isolation that's been a reality for so many people has meant that children that are targets of predators in their own homes you know women and children that are survivors right now bravely every single day encountering domestic violence have had no reprieve the kids haven't been able to go to school in some circumstances, which is where they're getting their only nutritious meal or a break from the abuse. I mean, how do you walk with that every single day? When I talk to advocates, I ask, I mean, how do you go home? How do you sleep? How are you able to enjoy a barbecue? How are you able to police officers? How are you able to see what you see? We read that powerful letter a couple of weeks ago from a victim services counselor that wrote in and described the assignment of accompanying law enforcement to notify families of sudden deaths like motor vehicle accidents and the things that people are carrying. I don't know. I don't have the answer. But I, nobody would blame somebody like Scott from from finding some way to to give his brain or his heart a break to go for a trail run or whatever it is. Not that it solves anything. And I don't mean to be pithy or shallow on this, but people are trying to find ways just to process every single day. I think it's important to not look away. And the reason why I say that, I mean, I was just looking it up and the first Muslims to arrive in Canada. Do you want to wager a guess on when that was? Well, uh, probably. Well, at least I know that the, the oldest mosque in Canada is is uh, like well over 100 years old. So you betcha. Yeah. First Muslims arrived in Canada in 1871. Yeah. So to me, this idea that, you know, oh, it's it's this population is othered is is longstanding. And um, it's because people have been looking away. And as we've heard time and time again, the. You know, people, indigenous communities are saying, we're not shocked. We've known this for decades, for a century or more. We've known. But people have been looking away. So, yes, it is a lot to take on, but it is ours to take on and to listen and to reckon. This is like the term reckoning. This is the reckoning. 
Angela White representing the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. We're so grateful Angela's agreed to join us today. Welcome to Real Talk, Angela, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me and inviting me. This is, uh, I think, an amazing opportunity to begin dialogue and peeling back the layers. You know, uh, the word that we hear most frequently from non-Indigenous people uh, when asked to comment on this, we just heard the same word from both the mayors of Lethbridge and High River. Uh, We've heard the same word just right now from from the producer of this show, Sarah Hoyles, and from a a myriad of others is listen. Uh, What's the most important thing that you hope that people across this country are hearing, are listening to right now? I think one of the most important things I think that we as a society can do is step back, pause, and first um, be willing to understand and acknowledge and learn, but don't overpower with your voice exactly what Sarah was saying. Listen, don't um, come in thinking that you have the solutions to, (laughs) to all these problems because nobody has the solutions and two if you're talking about any marginalized society that um, I guess that's out there, no one else can actually talk on your behalf. It's only you that can do it. Angela, before we get into some of, uh, you know, the, the specifics and, and what the last couple of weeks has, has looked like through your eyes and, and what the advocacy efforts and support has looked like. Why don't we get a more clear understanding uh, for the benefit of our audience on what the Indian Residential School Survivors Society is, is all about? This was not formed. Let's be very clear. This was not formed in the last two weeks. Uh, this is a society that's been doing important work for quite some time. Uh, Yeah, we've actually been doing the work that we've been doing for almost 30 years now, quietly doing the work and and getting out to community and creating culturally appropriate and culturally safe uh, spaces for healing for Indigenous populations throughout this province. And it's just recently, like, um, we're kind of put in that limelight and, and trying to allow everyone to get caught up to to where we're at or what the work we've been doing for the last um, several years. And, uh, you know, our organization was established um, specifically for the settlement agreement in this country that um, was to help resolve and, and bring some sort of com- compensation to former students of Indian Residential School. And uh, it started out first as more of a, a, a court-style setting where you'd have um, people cross-examining people's testimony with what was happening in school. And that was very, very traumatic for a lot of survivors. And, and so they moved it to something a little bit more subtle, I guess, and where it was, they called it an, an IAP adjudication hearing, independent assessment process. And that's where only the adjudicator and the claimant had voice at the table, lawyers, churches, government, um, all weren't able to speak at that except those two. And of course, IRSSS was there along with other um, organizations to help support those survivors through those traumatic testimonies. Angela, you talk about the limelight 
uh, I mean, the, the attention that, that this story is seeing and, and much of it is extremely important, obviously. I mean, you see it in a sense, I think a nation um, waking up uh, and, and, and I think that people that are, you know, I've, I mean, gosh, you know what? I, you know, I saw something. I, I, this isn't too abstract of a comment. I saw somebody yesterday, a friend of mine who's a, who's a thrifter. You know, she goes to like thrift shops and finds things. And she simply posted this T-shirt that she had found. And it was this orange T-shirt that said every child matters. And there was a beautiful dream catcher on it. And, mm-hmm. and, and I thought two things. I thought, number one, isn't it interesting that she's seeking that out right now? Number two, isn't it interesting that somebody had thrifted it? Right. That it had been thrown in the thrift pile. And then now she found it. And I sat and I just stared at the post for a while because I kind of go deep into things sometimes. And, and, and it just felt to me like that 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 image really said a lot. So that's the impact that it's having on millions of people across the country. But I would imagine that it's been a very difficult couple of weeks for survivors of residential schools. You are absolutely correct in that it's it's more so. Um, I guess the difficulty comes is I think I heard Sarah say or yourself say earlier that we as a, a community have known these that these testimonies were there is truth behind it, and the rest of the world kept questioning, denying that didn't happen. That was a long ago. You know, those are a lot of those sentiments that we hear, and. Um, so the survivors are actually having that reconciliation amongst themselves of how their voices have finally been validated and heard and that because of the narrative that was, was playing out at these schools by the um, people in authority, the priests, the nuns, the, you know, the workers, that they are worthless, their voices would never mean anything. No one would ever believe a word that came out of their mouths because um, in quotations, they are nothing but dirty, savage Indians. As a three, four, five, six, seven-year-old child, you're gonna start believing that narrative. And when people go through trauma, childhood trauma, and they are triggered, they are automatically yanked back into that child, that that childlike behavior. They may be 60, they may be 70, but they're still being triggered into that childhood trauma. And so a lot of what they're reconciling with themselves is, I, I was seeing what I was seeing. I'm not crazy. Um, they do believe me. And that's a lot to take in all at all in one fell swoop. And it's a lot to have these survivors start peeling back those layers of trauma and, and looking at it. And because their voices were silenced for so many years, they whispered, you know, they didn't always tell their family, but they whispered to other survivors. They whispered to um, people who were willing to listen, um, whether it's in, counseling or therapy but even then it was um it was easier to whisper i guess because that narrative was there and uh, now that it has come to a full full-pledged shout i think it's one of relief that people are finally believing them 
And two, they have to reconcile that trauma again within themselves. Uh, a remarkable uh, development in the House of Commons yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, a motion calling for the government to end, uh, quote, its belligerent and litigious approach to justice for indigenous indigenous children by dropping two appeals that the government is currently fighting in federal court in relation to the child welfare system. The motion passed 271 to zero unanimously mm-hmm. with support from all parties, including liberal backbenchers. Now, it's important to note that it's a, a non-binding request on the government. Liberal cabinet ministers and the prime minister himself, Justin Trudeau, did not cast a vote. What does that say to you? And what does the result of the vote say to you? I think the fact that um, it basically has is, is said exactly what we thought um, Justin Trudeau uh when he first was um, elected, you know, he really went into indigenous communities and he really peddled hard to get their vote. And he did get it in that, that first round. And what this really does say, not as a ED, not as a um, just a person in this country, that he is the depiction of a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. clothing. He's he says what he needs to say to get for people to believe. And that's exactly, that's exactly what they did in residential schools. They tell you what you, what you need to hear. Um, people who are, are, um, who seem to be allies, they tell you what you want to hear, but behind closed doors, that's when their true colors really shine. And, you know, we deal with that all the time in our, in our daily lives. And, um, I think one of my elders have always said, be careful of the ones that come closest to you because they're not always there to help you and lift you up. And, you know, that says a lot to me. What would meaningful action from a federal government look like to begin? I mean, I, I know I know what you're going to say and this. I don't know what you're going to say, but I suspect you might say, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe the calls to action, maybe implementing the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. Ryan, you may have heard of it. Is that where it begins? I think that's a good start. Um, instead of allowing those uh, TRC recommendations to collect dust, really look at that and start fixing um, what they spent millions and millions of dollars on on a study that's not that, that's just sitting there again collecting dust. I always say if you want to, um, <laughs> I used to always say when I was doing this, the best way to get government to spend money is ask them to do a study because they'll they'll throw money at a study. But if you ask them to fix something, there's bureaucracy, there's loopholes, there's hurdles, constant hurdles to keep jumping over. And they will never get there. Um, you know, looking at the Mary Ellen Terpel um, uh, inquiry to the treatment of Indigenous people in this country, looking at the MMIWG recommendations that they they spent a lot of money on across this country, and we have they've released that uh, twenty is it, is it twenty seven million dollars last week with regards to MMIWG. That money was rec. I was there six or seven years ago and they just released it today or last week. What does that also say? Looking at um, 
those relationships and actually moving towards action on building trust and relationships with people in authority, such as child and family services, such as RCMP, such as nurses, doctors, and teachers. And, you know, bringing back that trust and building it from scratch up. You can't build trust if you're going to start up here. You have to break it down and build it back from, from that, you know, from the foundation up. Because once it's up here and you're trying to build it, what about all of that past? We haven't acknowledged it. We haven't looked at it. We haven't actually done anything to make things better. Um, at I, w- I was also saying things like, you know, if the province wants to show up, um, what the federal government's doing. Let's look at building the, some of those um, relationships right now without waiting for any federal approval. If the federal government was really wanting to do something, let's look about getting the, the basic human right of clean drinking water in all of our communities. Let's look at building up, um, breaking down those stereotypical um, uh, situations where we are only, what, 2% of the Canadian population, yet we are almost 75% within the child and family services and prison systems. Let's break those, those issues down and make real changes and real impacts to community. Those are some of the areas I think we can really start at. If we want to um, start looking and holding churches accountable, let's have them start putting some money behind that and building back what they took away, the languages, the culture, the traditions, that would mean something. Yeah. I I mean, I know that there are, there are, uh, I mean, there was the the Pope acknowledged this um, in in public statements a short time ago. And you, you smirk like I do in in the sense that what I'm saying is I guess he, he, he he used a couple of words. um, Although he said, you know, I mean, there were even some, some areas where to, to, to be candid, he kind of blew it right out of the gates. I think, you know, talking about how his thoughts are with Canadians and I've seen indigenous people push back and say, well, eh, start again, you know, right away, mm-hmm. start again. Um, did not apologize. I know that there are indigenous leaders um, from across the country that intend to head to the Vatican to seek an apology from the Pope word out of the Vatican. Uh, I've not seen this confirmed is that the Pope is at this point leaving this with Canadian bishops. There's some possibility rumored this summer where potentially the Pope may visit Canada and issue an official apology. I've seen a lot of people have conversations uh, about, about class action lawsuits. I've seen people talk about uh, reparation. I've seen people talking about starting to tax churches. There are many different conversations all stemming from this tragic discovery, where do you think that that should begin? What's your perspective on this, Angela? Um, From a grassroots level, from basically, you know, the people that we're working with directly, I think uh, for for the most part, any apology that comes now is meaningless. But um, and it will fall on deaf ears, uh, so to speak, because they've had decades to apologize and have refused every step of the way. Um, I think from a personal perspective, he needs to apologize on behalf of the Catholic Church because, one, it's the right thing to do. There's nothing, you know, whether we agree with it or not. They have yet to make any acknowledgement or even ownership of all of the harm generationally that that has has plagued 
us as indigenous people. You know, you look at, um, as a, I, let me just say it this way, as an indigenous person, we have, or I have struggled my entire life with a lot of intergenerational trauma. I grew up very angry. I grew up in a household of violence, of alcohol, and, and all of these things that, you know, you, you, you kind of normalize in your life, and that's our normal life. And I completely acknowledge that my upbringing is a sliver of what other people of, in my same situation have gone through. But depending on what the supports you have at home, depending on how much healing has done in your household, depending on if you're going through um, high school, what counselors, what teachers are actually bring, helping you and lifting you up during that entire process. I remember in high school, I, I was constantly asked to go down to see my counselor during um, English and, you know, English class. You're like, yeah, sure, let, let's go. Because while well, you're a teenager, you want to get out of class. And this counselor would constantly sit me down because I, I was um, also an athlete in, in high school. So uh, very few Indigenous people back in the day would actually try out for high school sports, right? So um, he kind of took that interest in, in you. And so he's like, we'll sit you down and he go, okay. And they called me Angel back then. Okay, Angel, how are you doing? And I'm saying, I'm fine. And he'd go, no, really, how are you doing? And I was thinking, oh my God, what the hell does he want from me? And uh, this would go on for months and months and months. And finally, <clears throat> I think it was where he was building enough trust to to just open a sliver of that door so that you can actually feel safe in a, in a place where you never really had connection with before. And it's those little acts that actually help you rise above all of that trauma and, and you know, do something productive in your life. I mean, that's, I think, my personal perspective on, on it. I'm... Uh First of all, I, I would like to sp speak with you for six hours sometime. Um, I just have an, a, a world of respect for you. You and I have never spoken before and I've never met you no. personally. Um, you, you strike you strike me as somebody that has this incredible strength of character um, that that is able to provide supports for people and speak on behalf of people and provide people a voice. Um, yet at the same time, I cannot imagine how you would not be carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders i mean how do you do when when you do the work that you do with a group like the indian residential school survivor society considering the the magnitude of this trauma and the implications of it on generations of indigenous people how do you continue to do what you do a lot of grounding a lot of healing and a lot of forgiveness um, and acts of forgiveness, as well as um, moving in, into a place of self-care. Uh, and by self-care, it was also learning to like yourself again and moving towards loving yourself. And I think, if I may say that, um, acts of forgiveness was the biggest step for me. And it, and as one of my dear friends would always say, it's you got to remember that you're not forgiving 
um, you're not forgiving the the person or you're forgiving the person what you're doing is you're you're also forgiving the behavior it's not that you're you are actually saying they get off the hook you're still holding them accountable but you're building those boundaries around yourself in in that process and so once i started realizing that it, it was an anchor holding me back that that's when i was able to do the work that i've been able to do for so many years i mean not a lot of people can can do this work in over a 14 year period and and not burn out emotionally because of the stories and the testimonies that you're hearing. And um, as a parent and now a grandmother, um, I think it was back when I was in my 30s, I, I had a conversation with each of my daughters and, and it was um, very simple. I just said, I'm sorry for how I, I, um, I was as a parent in my time of healing. I'm sorry I wasn't the best parent I possibly could be. And it, they all had different reactions. Like when I was in my 30s, I think my daughter was maybe um, just turning 20 herself. And so, <laughs> I mean, not 20, 19, 18, 17, something like that. Because I, I was quite young when I had my first daughter. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and she, she, she she's now 30 and she looks at... Um, Back then, she looked at me and she says, Mom, I'll always love you, but sometimes I absolutely don't like you when you were going through those healing processes because I was a very angry person and I was very reactive. <laughs> of course. I mean, how could you how, how could you not be? I mean, I, I just I can't even imagine. Angela, my, you and I come from very different backgrounds. Um, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. You know, I'm thinking back. I, I grew up a Calgary kid. Right. And um and, and, and uh, you know, my dad's office where it was a medical practice um, almost directly bordered uh, the Sutina nation. And uh, many of his patients were indigenous and had an opportunity to get to know a few of them. I know it was always important for my dad. His the walls of his office were adorned with indigenous art. He had a, a dream catcher up in his personal office that, that had been a gift from a patient. It was always on my radar. This this the, the culture was on my radar. But I also think of of how I grew up, you know, attending the Calgary Stampede, for example, and they, they had the so-called Indian village. And, you know, you'd look at these photos of the, these these great chiefs and these indigenous leaders that had, you know, participated, whether it was in in, in a smudge or a peace pipe ceremony with with these settlers. And um, and 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 were oftentimes sort of portrayed as if I can speak plainly and candidly as mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the, the sort of the smart the, the reason why they're so great or the smartest thing that they ever did was partner with us, you know, to, to sort of like, you know, be these deal makers and these brokers. And, and now I think back to these archived photos and I think I think of the photos of these these chiefs standing with whether they're political leaders or business leaders or whatever the case may be. And I see the photos through such a different lens. I'm trying to understand the rage that some of them must the inherent disdain is not a strong enough word i mean it's it's you know you're i mean people are starting to use canadians now using words like colonizer talking about cultural genocide i mean to me you talk about this anger deep inside you you as one individual um i cannot even imagine how entire communities were able to even wrap their minds around cohabiting uh on the same land i can't even imagine yeah, and um, I think one thing that we, we don't always look at is 
is as I, as an intergenerational survivor, you had the anger, but you didn't know what to connect it to. Hmm. Honestly, um, our grandparents and parents didn't talk about their stories. Um, you just knew that there was a, an, like you said, an inherent anger within and where is it coming from and what are you going to do with it? Uh, and growing up, um, I was, I was actually talking about, um, thinking about this the other day I, I think i'm very much like you and you know i'd be in one situation and all of a sudden that one situation will bring me back to so many different um thoughts and and processes processes that's going on in my mind and i look back to my high school and where i come from um it's a it's a little bit of a i guess my aunt's one of my aunts was constantly in a fight every single day after around school because she was indigenous and she learned how to fight. We all learned how to fight growing up one way or another. And, uh, and then I went into high school, like she's probably 12, 15 years older than me. And so when I got into high school, um, I was asking my one daughter, I said, you know, I look back at that and I'm like, my friends were my friends. They didn't look at me as being indigenous or native. They looked at me as a friend. And I said, I wonder what that was really about. I mean, I look at some of my other uh, cousins and family and, and their experience. And, you know, sometimes it wasn't always the best. It was um, always a, that stereotypical uh, rhetoric that kind of comes down to you. And I'll see my daughter says, I said, well, I was an athlete and I was a really good athlete. Um, and uh, maybe that's it. Like they accepted me because of that. And any one of my friends or family that were athletes, they were accepted pretty much the same way as well. We we had really amazing bonds and friendships with non-Indigenous people growing up. And so I really had to look at that. And I, I reached out to some of them and, and it was really, and one of my friends had said, as I grew up, she goes, that's when we start buying into or using language such as as you're saying colonizer language and then i and then i look at those relationships we had and she goes i was in a training session and you know the, the facilitator says you should be mindful of your words because that looks like you're taking ownership of of those of the local indigenous populations and those friendships and that they may take offense to it and i'm thinking and I told her, I said, you know, I cherished our friendships. I enjoyed them because we were all friends. Like we just hung out. We just did lunch. We went, you know, weekend stuff. <laughs> and she goes, she goes, I was really questioning those relationships. She said, I was really questioning them because I thought, was, was I taking that colonized perspective or was it real friendship? Mm. And I said, for me, from my perspectives, it was real. There was no undertones of racial um, tension there whatsoever and I appreciate and accepted those relationships and she's like oh she goes and it was like a breath of fresh like a relief from her she's like I started like I said when I was questioning that she goes I really was going maybe I wasn't their friend maybe I we didn't have those relationships and so I think uh, the best advice I could probably give to people on that is follow your heart because your heart will tell you everything you need to know it's when the brain starts getting um, interwoven into that. That's when we start questioning what those realities really were about. 
Angela um, received a, a very uh, moving message from a, a, a firefighter in a, in a Canadian urban center, a major urban center. And I read it on the show last week and a portion of what he wrote. He wrote about how he was heartbroken about the, the responses that they had made, uh, countless responses in the inner city. Um, as he put it, responding to to calls uh, involving indigenous people, suicides, cold weather, exposure, deaths, overdoses, homicides. Um, and, and he wrote about how he remembered almost dismissing them or the seriousness of them because they were indigenous people and mm-hmm. and because there were pervasive problems with the indigenous <laughs> population. Uh, he wrote, uh, I'm um, he wrote, I'm so broken that I felt that way. And he said, and I now see through these residential schools. He says, we broke these people, their spirit, their will, their reverence for the land. And I pray that somehow they can return to their ways and their relationship with the land and their customs, their traditions and their families. Uh, That's that's just one person expressing their personal journey, uh, personal and professional, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of talk about seven generations and 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 what healing might look like and i want to ask you if you're optimistic or if you believe that there that 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 culture and those traditions and that spirituality and the understanding of medicines and everything can be restored i will say straight out that yes i have hope and faith that that's that's the case and I, I look at this again from my own personal um, journey. My grandparents all went to residential school. My mom went, went to a, a Catholic day school. I am, my dad didn't go, but so, you know, I'm either one generation out or two generations out, depending on what side of the family you're talking on. And you look at um, perhaps my, me and my sister's journey, and I look at how despite everything we've gone through, how much we've succeeded in life. Um, not just grasping um, the, edu- uh, the, I guess, the colonial educational system, but trying to put our feet deeply rooted into the grounds and understanding what that culture is and how it, what it means to us and moving forward with, with that. And then I look at my daughters and um, how well they're doing and, you know, you know, I say my oldest, I, I probably screwed up the most. I mean, that's our, I hope, pardon, that's our test child, right? Mm-hmm. And so I screwed her up the most. And uh, then my baby, you know, she's, she's a true millennial, right? Like the world revolves around her and, and you know, that's, that's just the way it is. And then my middle daughter, she gave me a grandson and I look at him and his, he doesn't understand anything that we've been going through and he's learning the languages, not just the Hulkamenum language, but the Nutomas language, which is his his um, father's side. So he's learning both of those languages plus English and and how much he loves hunting, how much he loves fishing. How, and then I look at my baby girl and she's picking up the language and speaking it on a regular basis and, and she's learning how to write it because it wasn't a written a language. So they're learning how to do that. And so I see it on social media all the time on, on how she's actually interacting and she's a hunter she's a fisher she loves getting out collecting medicines she, she has her drum group with all young ladies that that prove uh, amazing strength and gives amazing medicine to those that, 
that are seeking it through their through the songs that they've created and, and composed. And that brings me amazing hope. And so even if my girls are like either second or third generation, you look at how much healing has been done in a very short period of time. Because again, that's, what is that? My grandson would be like the third generation. Mm -hmm. And this is the residential schools and all those policies. How many leaps we've actually succeeded in life in that very short period of time. We're not, yes, they tried to break us. And I said, what they ended up doing is just fracturing us just a small amount so that we can actually come back a lot stronger with the weight of our ancestors helping us along the way. Emma is a member of our live audience right now. She says Angela's vulnerability and strength is absolutely amazing in every sense of the word. Um, Angela, you, you strike me as somebody that's pretty aware of uh, of, of what ha- what is happening across the country. And so I'll acknowledge I'm throwing you political questions and I'm throwing you curriculum <laughs> questions and I'm asking you to, to hit on a whole bunch of fronts. But I'm just you, you're just you're, you're here and, and you're just I mean, you're you're emanating wisdom uh, here. on, And I know that a lot of people are really appreciating the message that you have. Um, I spoke to uh, federal NDP leader Chuck Meet Singh the other day here on the show, and he said, I feel really weird calling these residential schools he says it feels really Mm -hmm. weird calling these schools uh, considering the role that they played in in this cultural genocide in 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 wiping i mean you know i mean you you talk about the the idea of savages and some of the justification for the residential schools, some of the correspondence written correspondence between church leaders and political leaders that has people Mm -hmm. so appalled that has statues toppling that has schools being renamed on the fly there's a lot going on and amid all of this there's a conversation east of you in our home province of Alberta right now about this draft curriculum. Uh, One of the authors of this curriculum, Chris Champion, has made deplorable comments, um, including recently by way of the Dorchester Review. People can search those themselves. I've spoken about it at length. The curriculum in general is being criticized, including from indigenous leaders that had initially uh, endorsed it like Treaty 8 Grand Chief uh, Billy Joe Labakan, uh, who originally spoke in support of it, now describes himself as feeling like he was the token Indian in all of this, that he was essentially misled. Uh, what is it that that uh, I mean, when we're talking about schools? OK, so so, uh, you know, Jagmeet Singh's comment about residential schools. We talk about the role of schools now in reconciliation. Uh, what role does curriculum have to play? Curriculum is a huge component of, of um, how we actually move forward as a society. And you can actually look at the various segments of generational curriculum as we're moving forward and how much, how much or how little things have changed and how it has shaped what we learn and what we teach um, to, uh, Canadians along that way. Um, I've always said... Uh, if I can go back to, I think I'm going to go back a few steps as well to what you're saying about Jagmeet Singh. I always, I always say under the guise of school, this was not a school. It was an institution that was put into place for the elimination of an entire race of people, whether it was through um, taking away their culture, language, and traditions, and there would be 
collateral damage along the way. At uh, the moment that you dehumanize a race of people, that's when you actually, it's easier to um, roll out those agendas. And within these educational, so-called educational facilities, they also use those children as experiments. Seeing things like, what does starvation do on a body? What happens to, um, how do we actually uh, cure or actually go about treating tuberculosis? And so they actually had study groups of children that were intentionally infected with TBs, not for the benefit of the Indigenous population, but for the non-Indigenous population, because TB was uh, something that was uh, rampant in our communities. Um, so you have dentists that were actually uh, put into these in, um, institutions uh, and paid by how many teeth they pulled out. If you go to a survivor and you and you actually look at their, my mom doesn't have, all of them have um, those implants or those dentures because a lot of them don't have teeth anymore. Dentists were paid based on how many teeth that they they brought into the federal government. These are all documented. It's all, it's all there. So no, it wasn't schools. They and those that survived, they were They actually were placed into learning facilities that would teach them the jobs that no one else would want. Farmers, uh, cleaners. You know, um, I think one was a baker. So, yeah, I, I agree with Jagmeet on that. It, it's not a, it, they weren't schools. It was a, a farce of, of using amazing English languages to help or disguise what these institutions really put into place for. Then if we go into um, curriculum, if we don't, I, was, I used to always say, um, history is only ta is taught based on the ones that believe that they won the war. So if you look at our history curriculum, what has what history has been um, taught to yeah. all of our children in these schools? Yeah, written by the victors, so to speak. Yeah, and when you look at how many years these policies and, and deliberate policies and legislations that were put in place by the federal government, you can actually see um, hundreds and hundreds of years of attempts to eliminate and eradicate the indigenous population of this country. And, and that being said, you know, starting off with uh, enfranchisement, enfranchisement was put in place to try and have p indigenous people voluntarily give up their identity to become brown people, but living a white world. And my grandfather who fought in World War II was enfranchised because the only way he could go fight in World War II is if he gave up his indigenous identity. And then when you come back, you're not white enough to be in the white world and you're not Indian enough to be in the so-called Indian world defined in that you're kind of in limbo. Then you have all of these other um, policies that were put in place for, uh, to deliberately um, handcuff indigenous populations. And the biggest one for us was when they um, you're from Alberta, so you know that they're very nomadic in Alberta. You know, they, they followed the food source and they, you know, they moved around. 
So one of the biggest um, hindrances within the policies was creating reservation systems. Those reservation systems were put in place to maintain and isolate indigenous populations. And then so to, to have somebody come in and monitor that, they called them the Indian agent. That Indian agent was responsible for giving anyone that wanted to leave the boundaries of the reserve a notice, a notice that says you have until this date to this date, from this time to this time, if you don't come back within that, we're going to send PRCP out and, and arrest you and put you in jail. You know, there's all these things that were, were put into place to, to try and achieve that one mandate, elimination. And when you really look at that history, then you start to understand how close they did come. But through the and this is where I was, through the strength of those that actually survived, I call them the strongest people I know because they hung on to the threads that they remembered so that they could pass it down to us. And that's what we're, we're trying to rebuild and rebraid and make strong again. Absolutely incredible. Angela White is uh, speaking with us, joining us this morning. Uh, in the capacity of her role with the Indian Residential School Survivors Society, I want to direct you to their website where they're accepting donations where you can help contribute to and further their work. You can offer your supports in a number of ways. I encourage you to check out IRSSS.ca. That's IRSSS.ca, the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. Angela, I, I, I can't adequately or fully convey my appreciation for your candor, your courage this morning. Um, you have uh, got our audience, I know, uh, talking in a way that, that is providing encouragement and some optimism in the face of, of absolutely devastating circumstances, a devastating and deplorable reality. The work that you've been doing for decades Um is absolutely remarkable and so very important to say the least. Thank you on so many fronts and thank you for being here with us today. Uh, thank you, Ryan, for having me. And um, I agree. I, I um, We had never met before, but I think um, you and I can probably have some amazing conversations <laughs> after the cup of tea for sure. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, next time in your, I'm in your neck of the woods. I can't wait to be out there. I'll, I will look you up and, and you do the same. Once once this pandemic's done, uh, we'll be in a nice big new studio and we're going to be welcoming in-studio guests. And I would love to bring you in for, for a round table or something like that. And to, hey, when we can shake hands again, uh, you'll be one of the first people I'll be looking for. So thank you, Angela. We appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. That's Angela White of the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. <sighs> Sometimes I feel like after a conversation like that, you just reflect. You know, I mean, I guess my job is to sit here and come up with a bunch of words and and do a bunch of talking. But uh, what an absolutely remarkable person and. uh remarkable courage and incredibly important work and i feel like i mean sarah hoyles you know your job is to select which clip that will push out to promote the interview that will direct people to the full interview on our podcast or on our youtube page and i don't even know where you begin there i don't know i don't know where you begin i mean i think you know we'll post the link to that entire interview um by the way when i tweet out those links uh you know you if you click on the link that i push out it'll take you right to the start of that interview um, I, I feel like this is this is required viewing, mm. right? This is like a forty-minute conversation that everybody needs to 
pay attention to, regardless of who they are, where they're from, what their life experience is, how they're processing what they're seeing. The dentists, I mean, if, if you're like that to me is just what that that is for me, that is the first that I have learned of that. Yeah. And I think that that is precisely the point is that we need to listen. And I said, I'm a broken record with that word, but I'm it's just it's really landed for me that it that I we us white folk. We need to listen and, you know, curriculum, why do I, why do I not know this is because it has not been taught. There hasn't been listening and then it hasn't been taught. And I'm so grateful for, I mean, audience members of ours that, that aren't white folk, you know, people that are, that are um, contributing their conversation or their, their perspectives rather, you know, people that are saying, Hey, us, you know, us people of color, I saw it was a comment a while mm-hmm. back saying this is, I mean, we know what it's like to be othered. We understand what this is like They're She's speaking our language, you know, <laughs> Sharon says that that interview should be shown in classrooms, Right. Sherry just says, may we listen? Thank you, Angela. Jess says, speechless is okay sometimes. I agree. Mm. I absolutely agree. I'll tell you, I'm going to go for a walk after we wrap the show. And I encourage you to do the same thing. Hope says, my heart, although sad, feels full just listening to her. Her message is fierce, yet the way she delivers it is so calm. That, that's a great way to put it. What and a, kind. She's a, she's a, and, and kind and like, and also a force of nature. Do you know what I mean? Like she's had her own journey. She shares it. Yeah, there's there's like four. Like there's a. F- <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't really say this. You know, Nicole says no, Ryan. She gets a hug. Forget the handshake. You know what? I double clutched on that. I was going to say hug. I, I certain sensitivities and developments in society. I I I used to be. I don't know. I don't if this is a weird angle to take. I'm just. I I like confronting comments head on. Mm. I like just telling people how I feel about things. I used to be a real hugger. You're a hugger. Yeah. Did you? Did I ever tell you the story about the guest that came on my previous radio show and and I went to give her a hug because I'd known her for quite some time. She was in our bullpen and we were in a commercial break. What was what what that must be like to go get a coffee during a commercial break? I remember that back in the day. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, so we we go into the bullpen and. And, and she's ready to come in. And I was like, hey, and I went to kind of give her a hug because I'd known her for five or six or seven years. And she's like, eh, not a hugger and kind of put her hand out. And I, and I felt I was like appalled, first mm. of all, super awkward, felt like an idiot, totally respect that position. And then I go into our studio as we're coming out of commercial break and I click on her Twitter bio to introduce her. And her Twitter bio literally says, not a hugger. That was her social media bio was was how little she had an appetite for hugs. And Nicole, ever since then, I've been like, I'm a handshake guy. And then if people want to say, Jespo, no hands, we're hugging. Then I'm like all in. I then I'm add, all in. I should add it to my Twitter yeah, Hugging's not big for you? Not a hugger. We've never hugged. It's never really seemed appropriate, Sarah. Well, we're in a pandemic as well. We've never even shaken hands yet. We haven't even officially shaken hands on your employment. We have, we have done the elbow bump. We've done the elbow bump. You signed a piece of paper, handed it to me over the plexiglass, and you were welcomed to the team. <laughs> Ta-da! Um, you know, uh, guess going, I'm just reading comments. You know, she's, you know, Angela's amazing viewer. She's, she's an angel. She is an angel and, and she gets it because she's lived it. Unfortunately, she does a lot of good work and she should be praised. I mean, the, the amazing comments, the comments speak for themselves on the, on the live chat. 
Crazy Fast Eddie says it's time to change the meaning of Canada. It's a figment of our imagination. This is actually a good time to review the the results of our poll of the day yesterday. Plus, I want to get to an email before we sign off. Um, You know, we make decisions on the fly sometime. I lied to you yesterday without meaning to lie to you, everybody. We did intend to get into the results of our past question of the week uh, from our friends at Y Station, our official research and strategy partners. Number one, I want to fast track everybody uh, getting a breath of fresh air and debriefing a little bit. So we'll get into that on tomorrow's show. But I do want to remind you, it's, it's a conversation about racism and sport we've, we've done a lot of heavy lifting today um i do want to remind you if you go to ryanjesperson.com right now though our current question of the week super easy to find right at the top of the page it's about this and we want to know what af- what affect these conversations around the former residential school in kamloops these 215 souls and others uh, what it's had on uh, your you know, I mean, what sort of effect it's had on your understanding of your identity, whether that's Canadian or otherwise, what you believe can be done and how you, you know, how all of us think, basically, that, uh, you know, we should treat or lionize or chastise. Or if you if you believe the concept, cancel people from our history that have participated in these crimes. We're doing the question of the week a little bit different this week in that we're going to be presenting the results to you on Friday. Uh, We wanted to do a fast tracked one. We wanted to see where the audience lands on this. So RyanJesperson.com right at the top is where you can answer our question of the week. We'd be grateful. I'm hoping to see about a thousand respondents on this one. Want to see a good sample size. I want to remind you that the team at Kubi Energy uh, yesterday was proud to present positive reflections and, and, and what an amazing positive reflections it was. We, we heard back from Debbie, by the way, Debbie's nine week old puppy uh, that had discovered its its reflection in the mirror. You remember that? And we were all speculating on what it was. We're like, is it a terrier? Is it a what? What is it? Is it? A, and we were all wrong. We're talking about, well, we were kind of right. See, I pulled the veteran move as a broadcaster. <laughs> when you don't quite know, keep it as vague as possible i do remember saying the word terrier on the air and debbie wrote in to say bruce her dog bruce is a west highland terrier she says i i would have responded sooner rye but it takes me like five hours to get through your show now because there's a lot of pee breaks training and playing going on i assume that debbie's talking about bruce she says i really enjoy the show keep up the good work debbie right back at you thanks for tuning in and good job with bruce what a handsome good boy bruce 14 out of 10 kubi energy's team also ranking that high in all their solar installations just check the customer reviews they're tesla certified they're certified electricians and electrical apprentices and they're doing installs on residential commercial and industrial applications across western canada right now you can learn more about your sustainable energy future and a government grant that can help you cover the cost of some of it by going to kubienergy.ca of course you can submit your positive reflections as well to talk at ryanjesperson.com that's also where you can send in your track talk the team at local waste wants us to remind you that's coming up again on friday it's how we wrap up our broadcast week it's your chance to blow off a little steam the team at local waste wants to send out an alert right now in all seriousness to business owners across the province of alberta they're also doing business in saskatchewan right now and always looking to grow there's another waste services provider that's 
tricking people, quite frankly. These are my words, not theirs. A waste services provider that's misrepresenting the status of their contracts following an ownership change. And they're tricking people, quite frankly, into new long-term contracts. The team at Local Waste wants me to remind you entrepreneurs that you always have choice when it comes to who you partner with for waste management, recycling. And if something stinks, it's always good to call Local Waste. They can help you deal with it at localwaste.ca. Yesterday, we we asked you uh, how you were feeling. We we put out an an unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll about how you feel about that hashtag that was trending over the weekend, Cancel Canada Day. And some pretty interesting results. The poll is is now closed. The final results, we had 1,357 people cast a vote. So just shy of 1,400. Uh, pretty interesting results. Uh, I don't know if they're surprising or not. Uh, one in five, uh, just under 21% of respondents said that you intend to cancel Canada Day this year. Uh, about 43%, just under a majority, 43% said you will celebrate Canada Day. And then 36% said it's complicated. So as Sarah reminded us yesterday, you've either got about 80% of people saying I'm going to celebrate or I'm going to celebrate or observe it, but it's complicated. A lot of people pushed back on my use of the word. I gave you the options canceling Canada Day, celebrating Canada Day, or it's complicated. The use of the word celebrating was not an accident. I felt like if you're wrestling with the word celebrating, you should choose it's complicated, which is what I would have done. Uh, I did not vote on my own poll. I don't know if you can vote on your own polls, but regardless. So the point that you made, either 80% of respondents are celebrating or acknowledging it's complicated or about 57% are canceling it or acknowledging it's complicated. I'm going to I'm going to throw a total wrench into this and say, instead of saying that they all go one way or the other, why don't we just split it right down the middle of the it's complicated? Yeah. But, but people this are, is so unscientific. But it's interesting because, like I said, I've, I've done multiple interviews in past years, oftentimes raising the ire of people. Mm. People would be furious. Some people were calling me a traitor for facilitating conversation about why some people were canceling Canada Day, so to speak. Now, I mean, again, unscientific, unofficial, this Twitter poll, but 1,400 people, 1,357 people respond mm. and 21% say they're canceling Canada Day. One in five. It's an interesting conversation. Now, we received many uh, responses, you know, many replies to my tweet, which I always appreciate. And I don't know who this person is, um, but I follow Sunshiny. Follow Sunshiny with two N's and two I's. Sunshiny said, well, why don't Canadians use this day, July 1st, to reach out to Indigenous people? You know, I'm proud to be Canadian, but I'm ashamed of the way Canada's treated Indigenous peoples. I commit to listening to Indigenous people and working in partnership to build an inclusive democracy. I pledge my allegiance to this nation, to all its people, especially Indigenous peoples. And I humbly accept the responsibility to right the wrongs that have oppressed people of Indigenous ancestry. Uh, Maybe instead of Canada Day, we call it Reconciliation of Canada Day. Sunshine, he says, I want to be able to celebrate Canada because it's, you know, it's people live in peace and harmony together. I commit to making this a reality by making this day the first Canada Day that truth and reconciliation begins in earnest. Today is the first day of a united Canada. 
I know some people will push back on that characterization. That's fine. This is one person's feedback. Sunshine, goes on to say, I want to be part of an inclusive Canada that celebrates and honors its indigenous peoples. I want to promote indigenous ways of being, knowing, thinking, and, and I want to stop accepting silent genocide. I want to elevate indigenous voices. I want to ease the suffering of those that are still healing. I want to learn about the genocide committed against indigenous people and hold those responsible accountable. I want to learn about indigenous worldviews and how to welcome those views within my own understanding of what is Canadian culture. That's one response from someone, and I appreciate that. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I'm going to wrap with this. A powerful email from Jerry. You may remember during our conversation yesterday about the opioid crisis in Canada, in Alberta and B.C., that I read a couple of comments off our live chat from Jerry, who was talking about her husband, estranged, the father of her children, talking about how he needs supervised consumption, how she hopes that he can return from his houselessness, his life on the streets, his life of opioid addiction and how he she's optimistic and hopeful that he can take his rightful place in the lives of his children. Again, Jerry followed up with an email and I want to wrap the show with this. She said, Ryan, Sarah, Sam, I've thought about writing the show several times and and today I'm finally sitting down to do it. I've been a listener of the podcast for quite some time. Jerry says at first, as a matter of fact, I was a podcast listener, but lately I've been tuning in live on YouTube. Jerry, welcome. She says, I don't normally comment in the live chat. I'm usually busy working while I listen. Thanks to everybody that listens while they work. She says, today was a day off. And while listening to your guests talking about the opioid crisis, I'd left that comment. And then you read it on air. She says, I'm the mom who's raising three daughters, 18, 16, almost 12. They haven't seen their dad in over six years because of his opioid addiction. We live in Grand Prairie, Alberta. And their dad, my ex, left to Calgary shortly after our separation. When we first separated, I I thought that would finally be the thing that would prompt him to seek help. It didn't. And things got worse and he's been to jail and he's overdosed a few times and he's currently homeless and he can't pay any child support. And I would still give anything for my girls to be able to just see him again, to have a conversation with him, to hug him. They miss him a lot. They worry about him in a way that kids shouldn't have to worry about their parents. We do get texts from him from time to time, but it's not uncommon for several months to pass without any word. And at first I was so angry with him for not getting clean. But as the years have passed, my understanding of what he's been through and my and and my compassion have both grown. I've realized that getting help and getting clean is a lot more complicated than it would have been maybe back in the day right it's it's a lot more complicated than the so-called tough love or talking to people about how they have a choice i'm experiencing it firsthand these methods don't work or he'd have been back with us a long time ago i no longer look at him or or talk about him as a so-called drug addict he's a person he's a dad a really great one he's a son a brother an uncle a friend He's a human being who deserves life just as much as anybody else. Even though I've moved on and uh, I'm now engaged to somebody else, I still share stories with my girls. Sadly, we spend a lot of time sharing memories about him like you might do after somebody's passed away. The difference is he's still very much alive. 
says I don't have the time to share our whole story in this letter to you, Ryan. I mean, I wish I could like like how he and I got here and how my own views have changed over the years. And I could tell you so much about the pain of loving somebody who's experiencing an addiction or, or how his own upbringing as an indigenous person in Canada likely led him down this path. But I just wanted to thank you for having these real conversations. Thanks for sharing comments like mine on the live chat. People tend to forget that there are real grieving human beings backing those that are struggling with addiction. I love the show in this audience so, so much. That from Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. And much love to you. We'll be back at it tomorrow. A big show in store for Wednesday morning, including a conversation, our continued conversations with federal political party leaders. What does the Green Party strategy look like under new leader Annamie Paul? She's going to join us. We're going to talk to Rabbi Jill Jacobs. And by the way, Stacey Levitt from the Edmonton Jewish Federation joining us on Thursday. Make it a great day. Get some fresh air. Self-care is important, friends. One love.